Hey everyone, welcome back to Pin the Q Podcast. Special episode here on Long Island and Freeport. And I'm here with someone who does, doesn't need any introduction whatsoever. Paul Hashagan from Rescue One, Manhattan, also a member here at Freeport, which is an all-volunteer company. Right, department. Fire department, which is a, it's a ladder company. Yeah, I'm a member of uh, Excelsior Hook and Ladder Company Number One, also known as Truck One. And uh, when we when we came here and started looking around, it was pretty cool to see the truck company and uh, you know, and also the the rescue you have here also pretty squared away rescue. Yeah, which I'm sure you had something to do with. Uh, a little bit in the beginning, yeah. The, one of the things that I enjoy most about this firehouse is the history. Right. Um, I was drawn to the fire service and history just for the fact that my grandfather had been a firefighter. So he was back in the horse-drawn days, and then when I got involved myself, the pictures meant a little something more than, oh, those old guys. It was, no, my grandfather's guys. So right. it drew me in. And that's one of the things um, that's so special to me about this show is trying to harness some of that tradition and some of that culture that we have because a lot of new firefighters coming in don't really understand that. Mm. Um, so I think it's important that we keep that alive. Like I look inside this house and you give us a great tour and I see the pictures. I mean, these are the, all the original apparatus pieces all the way back from the hand, hand pulled to its current pieces and then behind me, the high eagle hat, you know, helmet from, what year was that helmet from? 1874, I believe. Yeah, I mean, just to have that type of history here at our fingertips and be able to, to see it is important, um, especially for these new firefighters to see that. You know, it's not... There were people before us, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, And, and that's, the, that's the best part because I think a lot of the young guys and young women that get drawn to the fire service now, um, they just focus on what's happening, which is important. It's, it's certainly more technical than it's ever been. But just put yourself in the boots of the people that came before us, and they had relatively the same fires with a third of the equipment. Yeah. No masks. They had maybe had a wool coat, a leather helmet, and that was it. And guts. I was just going to say that. These guys were the real deal. Yeah. You know, going into these conditions with very minimal equipment and getting it done. Well, and that's where the art of being a firefighter really comes from. They had to learn how to do things that now it's relatively easy. I, I got into the fire service right as things were changing and as things as that change evolved into the, the modern fire department. I was in, there's a certain nostalgia now of um, the pull-up boots day, you know, all that stuff, riding on the back step and all that. And, yeah, it was kind of cool, but... Not every day on the back step was fun. No. <laughs> if it was snowing out, it, oh, yeah. it was horrible. You know, I'm very fortunate um, in the fact that I was able to do that. When I first started in uh, the late 80s, 89, we had that. You know, we had the hip boots and the long coats and, the, you know, the the SCBA with the elephant tubing we used yep. to put inside our jacket. We were trained to do that, you know, sure. if you ran out of air. And uh, and I read, rode the tail step on the CF Max. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was fun. And then eventually, you know, we started getting those man saver straps. You, you strap yourself in. And then after that, they got rid of it. And they, oh, you can't right. go on it anymore. And well, the shame of it is that people are getting killed. Right. I mean, it's dangerous enough. Right. You don't want to get killed or badly hurt on your way back from something or going to something. It, because you laying injured in the street is not accomplishing what it was you set out to do. So sure. if they could make that part safer, well, then it made us more efficient. 
Yeah. Because there's a lot of people, oh, they're, they're taking all the fun out of it. No, we have fun doing what we're doing. If you're having fun when somebody's house is burning down, you should see a psychiatrist because it's, that's not normal behavior. <laughs> right, right, right. But you can certainly feel good about what you're doing and have fun while you're doing it. But when we go to work, it's somebody's worst day, and you have to realize that. Absolutely, yeah. So, Paul, take me back to um, how this all started for you because I like hearing how it all began, you know, from everyone I speak to. So take me down memory lane. How did you become a firefighter? How did it all start? Well, my earliest recollections of the fire service, um, when my parents first got married, they lived in my grandfather's house in Jamaica, Queens, and he had been a firefighter in New York City from 1918. He drove a hose wagon in Manhattan, 76 engine, and then when 315 engine opened up in the 30s, he moved closer to his house and he was an original member of 315 Engine in Queens. And he still would stop by the firehouse on occasion, and I would go with him. So my first taste, wow. my first taste was a four, three, four, or five-year-old little kid. They slid down the pole with me. I laid in the bunks. I had a little cup of coffee with them, you know, mostly, wow. mostly milk. But <laughs> I was living in a firehouse. That's it amazing. Didn't, it didn't happen often, but it happened enough that that's all I wanted to do. And I must have drove my grandfather completely insane because I wanted to go to the firehouse all the time. Right. And then we moved to Freeport, and when I saw the fire trucks come around, I was enamored with them. So I immediately got photographs of them, and I had a chart, the old alarm system. They had horns and sirens here, which is the same thing as the bells in the city. And I would listen to the, I could count the horns, and knew where they were going. I had a chart. I don't know where. I think I got the chart from a guy in Hose 1, and I would ride on my bicycle. No kidding. And go watch them. Yeah. By listening to the... Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. But it's just... And I got fooled on occasion where you saw smoke, and it was the wrong town, and you were riding towards smoke. But I, I had a, an interest in it even then. And I remember there was a small fire on our block. We lived on a dead-end street on a canal in South Freeport, and uh, there was a little fire in a wall. And they're all in there. They're pulling the wall down. They're doing what they're doing. The whole street is full of fire trucks. So it was amazing for me. Yeah, as a kid, that's awesome. I grabbed my grandfather's Engine 315 helmet, and I have a raincoat on. And I work my way right into the room. And all, I could only imagine what they're thinking. They're just looking at me, asking my opinion. What do you think, you know? And they, they put up with me and sent me on my way eventually. But I was drawn to it. Wow. Know? And then uh, I got married. After driving my father crazy, once we moved to Freeport, I had no idea why he wouldn't want to be a firefighter. Um, but he was trying to raise a family and you know, make ends meet, so he had, right. a, he had a different agenda right. than I did. Uh, I got married. I moved out of town for a little while, and then when my second daughter was on the way, we moved back into town. And I was working for the phone company, and just by luck, I'm fixing a man's telephone, and I see he has a Maltese cross plaque. And I just mentioned, oh, my grandfather was a fireman. Next thing I knew, the next Sunday I was at that firehouse. And within a week, I'm in, hanging around the firehouse with the intent of getting in. And how old were you then? Well, I, I, now it's a little late compared to most people because you can join this department when you're 18. Right. So I was like 26. Okay. So, but I think that gave me a decided advantage because I wasn't a kid. Right. I was a little yes, bit some old. life experience. Right. I was a little bit older. I had children. Um, my wife was totally thrilled. 
And I bet. She married a telephone man that <laughs> now is running out the door <laughs> at any hour, leaving family parties and everything else. Oh, yeah, yeah. The struggle's but, real. Yeah, but um, as luck would have it, I, I made a rescue rather early, uh, just a little over a year in the department. And I think that changed everything. I know for me, but I think my wife suddenly realized that, yeah, there's a lot of craziness going on, but wow, look at that. You know, that's, that's impressive when you get to do something, a, a life-changing event. It, it changed my life, certainly, but hopefully it changed, you know, that young person's life. Walk, so, walk me through that, that rescue. Um, I was in Hose 5 when I started in, um, in Freeport. It's a hose company in the north part of town. That's where I met this man. He was a member there. They were looking for people, so... I went, and um, it was meeting night, and I was on the fire crew, and the bell started ringing. I jumped on the rig. We go down there. We're like the third engine, fourth engine. Truck company's already in doing searches, but it's an apartment house. And there was a report of a kid in one of the apartments above the fire. It was a cellar fire, pretty smoky. And I picked the right room. You know, wow. I, I just walked up to the command post. There was only three of us. And... Um, the chief just said, there's a kid, and me and another fellow went in. I went to the right, he went to the left. The truckies had the whole rest of the building covered, and I just go to the right spot. Just by chance. Yeah. The kid was in, in trouble. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in trouble. I had air. I had a, you know, right. I'm, I'm doing well. But the poor little kid's laying on the floor in, uh, wow. in pampers and a striped polo shirt taking a feed. You know, it was pretty smoky. But it was the old Scott with the bug eyes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, you know, I... And as my career would turn out, I walk out of the building with the kid, and one of the old timers was a photographer, and he took my picture. No kidding. And like from day one, they've been every time I did something good, they, somebody was there with a camera, and they they called me Hollywood Hash for a long time because <laughs> it seemed like it, there was a cameraman everywhere I went. But it's just it was dumb luck. What was it like, you know, when you got back to the firehouse after that that rescue? I mean, walk me through that. What was it like for you? Well, it it, it was pretty cool because it just it, it gives you a taste of the reality of it. Um, I, I think being a little bit older, you try not to let it go to your head, but it's, it's so rewarding sure. to actually go make a difference in somebody's life. If you save a person's house, that's great, but to save a life, I mean, that's the ultimate goal, why everybody puts their hand up. And here I get it relatively quickly on what normally wouldn't be my assignment, but that night it just happened to be. Right. Um, usually I was pushing hoses around. And, and having a ball learning how to do that. Sure. Um, so I, I had a taste of it, of, of that end of firefighting. I was trained on how to do searches and all the rest, but I was basically, you know, putting fires out. And then I decided to come to the ladder company, to the truck company, and I was welcomed here with open arms. I only lived down the block, so I was driving past this firehouse to go to the other firehouse. But and you only went there because you had met that I just that fixed, guy. I fixed right. a man's telephone. If his, if his phone wasn't broke, I'd still be in the phone company probably. Now, it's interesting to me that um, with it being ingrained so early on in your life at five years old, you have those memories with your grandfather, that at 18 you, didn't, you weren't chomping at the bit to get in that door at the firehouse. It's interesting. Well, I was in a different community. I moved. I couldn't afford to live here then, and we rented a house in Suffolk in a place called Lindenhurst, and it was nice, but we knew we weren't staying there. And I have a young wife with a, an infant. I don't know anybody really in town, just right. the neighbors on the street. 
and I'm going back and forth to Freeport to fix telephones. And I still was watching the Freeport Fire Department all the time. I'd be up telephone poles, and I could see the smoke were up in Roosevelt. So I was watching. That's interesting. And then once I got back here, you know, it wasn't long before I got bit. Yeah. So, so once you're in Freeport here at the Ladder Company, what, what was it like for you then when you first started? How, tell me how culturally it was different then. Well, it, it's unlike a lot of different places, as I was mentioning earlier, the Freeport Fire Department and much of this area of Long Island is set up like New York City. Um, other departments do it differently, but at least this battalion, if you're in a ladder company, you do truck work. Yeah, so you're a truckie. I'm, I'm, I became a truckie after about a year and a half and fought like a truckie ever since. And when I got here, they had a certain way of doing things. And, you know, the right way, as far as I could tell, and it's to this day, there's people still want to come to this company yeah. because of the, the education you get. And um, that's what I did. I, I got educated here and saw that this was something that I really wanted to do. And right before I came to a truck company, even up in Hose 5, um, the test for New York City was coming. So I decided, I had friends in, um, in the engine company up at headquarters, and we went and we took the New York City exam. And I had taken the exam to go to D.C. before that. What year was that that you took FDNY's test? It has to be um, 77. And it was one of the, they had just had the list before ran out. There was court cases, all sorts of problems. They wanted to get a new list, start fresh and I kind of walked right into it. I had scored very heavily or very well on the DC test, and I went down there and got interviewed and took a physical, and I was offered oh, a wow. job. Wow. And I knew that New York City was coming up, so I, I decided not to go down there. We didn't want to relocate all the way down there. I have to live in Virginia or something. Not right. that there's anything wrong with Virginia, but I didn't know anybody. Right, right. Um, it's like starting all over. Yeah. yeah. And then the idea of New York City coming. So I, I took the test there. did very well. I ended up uh, 125 out of 9,000, <laughs> and uh, they lost my fingerprints. Oh, no. So I was completely heartbroken because I would have been in the first class. Right. And But then I realized it really doesn't matter because I ended up in the second class. So it's only, a, and I got to work more overtime in the phone company because I was going to go from eating hamburgers to peanut butter and jelly. Oh, yeah. Because I was taking a, a pretty dramatic cut and pay to be a firefighter. Right. And uh, another thing my wife was very happy to see. <laughs> God bless her. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> Joanne been... was wonderful for the entire time I was in the fire service. And uh, the wives make it happen, that's for sure. Take me, take me back to when you got the letter, when you're like, Paul's going to FDNY. I still have it, yeah. Um, what was that like for you? Well, it was really so gratifying because... I worked so hard to get it. Um, I went to Delahanty, which was uh, like to help you take the written exam. I worked out um, just freshly joining truck company. I was running tournament team with them. I was running, doing pull-ups and all sorts of stuff to be in shape. I was playing hockey also at the time, three days a week. So wow. I was in probably the best shape I was ever going to be, yeah. and I did very well on the physical. So. I play, too, and it's the, the endurance factor I'm playing. Oh, like yeah, hockey it, is, it really helps, yeah, you, especially it, in firefighting. It does. Um, and the, you know, the teamwork, too, so right. it goes a long way. 
And then all of a sudden, here it is. Now, now it's going to happen. And to go there and get sworn in, I think it was the day before my actual in the fire department date, and to have my two little girls on my arm standing in front of a pumper while my wife is taking my picture. I mean, it was, you know, I'm thinking of my grandfather. It's everything I wanted to do, you know, and like, here it is. Hooray. It was like hitting a lottery, right? Oh, better than that. Yeah. 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 You know, I'm sure you didn't think once about the money because you're just so happy. I didn't have to. God bless it, Joanne figured out how to do that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Man. That is amazing, man. So, so where was your first assignment after you, after uh, recruit school? Well, I was in proby school, and uh, one of the instructors, I wish I remembered his name. I have it home, but he was, everybody was yelling at you, you know, like boot camp. Right. And uh, which is important because I later did that job, so I know what it is. And there was always one guy that would get us aside and say, take it easy, kid. You got the job. So this guy comes up to me and he goes, listen, my old captain came and he's looking for a good guy. And I thought, you're doing very well in this class. Maybe you'd like to go there. So I'm thinking, wow, that's a good captain. If he's looking for people, right. proactive. Right. I had no idea where I was going, just that this guy thought enough of me to mention my name to this captain that's looking. I said, yeah, I'll go. So I ended up going to 74 Engine on the Upper West Side of Manhattan one company south of where my grandfather oh, no kidding. worked. And it didn't strike me at that point. I was so busy yeah. trying to learn how to do things. The historical significance of what was going to happen in my career didn't really strike me. But I, I get assigned to 74 Engine. Uh, another fellow from the class went there with me. And that was a four-man engine at that time. So there's a little Mack pumper, back step, and it's three guys on the back step. The, the MPO is going to hit a hydrant, so right. there's, there's three of us, and that's it. And it's occupied Manhattan, roll-up hoses, and, you know, you're going to work hard if you're going to work. And I'm looking at the chart my first day. I come in, and I'm looking, and they go, they have two probies working their first day together. And I'm wow. thinking, this is not going to fly. <laughs> I mean, if I was captain, I wouldn't put up with that. Yeah. So the other guy, he's just standing there. He's just happy to be there, and yeah. I'm thinking one of us is going, so... <laughs> <laughs> about a half hour before the tour starts, the captain comes down, and I see he's like, uh, Yeah. <laughs> so he goes, well, we have a little problem. And I just looked at him and says, I'll go. <laughs> Thank you. That's the dispatcher making sure we're awake. Um, so I got detailed to 76 Engine. So I worked in the same fire company, different building, but the same fire company that my grandfather started in. Oh, that's awesome. And here it is 60 years later, almost to the day, and didn't realize it till later. No kidding. When I looked it up, yeah. It's amazing, was, how cool. they, it's, it's amazing how the universe works. Yeah. You know, it really is amazing. And I later got his badge. There was one day when they were giving badges out, and I was so busy doing the paperwork that they must have said, if you had a relative and you know the number, and they didn't hear that, so they gave me a different badge, and I started out with 8502. Automatic. I want to send him for a... Get a job. Freeport's got a job. So that's... So you actually got your grandfather's badge number? In both places. Really? Yeah. That's why I like... That's why I like doing these at the firehouse. Because it's authentic. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, and, uh, you know, sometimes we do them in, in front of the truck bay and the truck leaves, you know. Yeah, and it's it's kind of neat. I like I like doing it at the firehouse because, you know, 
I, that's why I don't want a studio. I think this is cooler, you know, yeah, going yeah. In, and doing on location. Well, you get you get out and you see what the buildings are like and what the people yeah. are like. And it's, I've been doing training all across this country and visiting different places, and it's almost exactly the same. It's slightly different from place to place, but it's the same kind of person doing the job, right, r- right. relatively. So, so your grand, so you got your grandfather's house, and that was what engine again? Seventy six. Seventy six. Seventy six engine. So I worked a day there. Uh, as it turned out, one day. Just the one tour, yeah. Oh, okay. And then the captain moved the groups around so that the oh, two okay. probies wouldn't be working together. At the exact same I got time. you. I got you. And um, they had a little job. We were second due, and the guy who stayed back had the nozzle. It was a five cent fire, but <laughs> he's smiling at me that oh, you know, I got the fire. You know, but I was happy just to be there, and I didn't care. I'm, I'm on the job. That's all I care. Right, right, right. The fires will come. And it was busy then, but not that little. 76 had a, a greater chance of going to a fire in that era than 74, um, just because they were about 10 blocks short of Harlem. So they ran for, on multiple alarms. They went up there a lot. But that particular day, nothing happened. But you know, over the years, I worked up there. I worked in the truck. I worked all throughout the battalion, just getting details or overtime when it came up. And it was a great learning experience. And I started getting a piece of the history uh, I became a little bit famous within the battalion because I was the probie who got detailed on his first day. Like, yeah. that's not supposed to happen. Right. But people got a kick out of it, so that was something to, to, to talk about. You right, know? right, right. Because in my house, there was one guy, um, Pete, and he told me right off the bat, and I knew what to expect, ha- having been in the volunteers before. Right. I don't talk to probies. Okay, good. No, so day after day after day, and I'm working with him every day, and he won't talk to me. You know, he'll take me to the truck and he'll speak, but we're not going to have a conversation. Right. I'll tell you what to do and all that. But that was him testing me. Right, feeling you out. So something happened. I'm, I guess I'm there about two months, three months, and uh, I'm making coffee, and I see him step in. He says hello to everybody, and I thought he nodded at me. So I went like that to him, and he yells, I'm not talking to you. I told you I'm not talking to you. He says, I'm not talking to you either. <laughs> And he goes, well, watch this. And I just said, well, I'm drying my nails. <laughs> well, he starts laughing so hard. And, and after that, he's, come here. You and me are going to get that other probie. So now all of a sudden I'm in. You know? <laughs> it's just silly, you know. But it's, it's the little thing that you have to earn. And, right. and to me, I started in Hose 5, came to truck company, went to 74 engine, went to 25 truck, went to rescue one. Right. So I was the new guy five times between... 1976 and 1983. Wow. So I've been in a lot of sinks. And yeah. I knew that that was my job to jump in that sink. Right. And to do all the housework and do all. And I was happy in every single spot I went to. That's awesome. Because that's what I'm supposed to do. And they noticed that. They all noticed it. Of course. Yeah. You're not complaining. You're just doing. I want to do it. I watched a, a YouTube uh, video. And, man, I apologize. But uh, it was a captain at a two... Of a, a squad, what's the squad company? Two fifty two. Two five two. Right. They did it. That thank you. They did a um, a YouTube video on, about squad two five two. They were going to shut it down. The mm-hmm. city was going to shut it down. Right. There's a captain on there. Yeah. And he transferred to uh, the Rock mm-hmm. to be instructor. And I loved what he said to the recruits, the probies in the, in, the, in the audience. He said, "You're on the payroll. You're not in the Brotherhood until the brothers say you are." Right. Like that, I like that because that's right. so true. Yeah. You know, you you until the brothers think you're a brother, or, you know, accept you. 
you're really not. Well, that it's it doesn't matter if you get paid or not. It's the right. exact same thing, and and it surprised me that there's a lot of people that come in and they take it the wrong way. Right. And does it happen that people uh, abuse it or go crazy? I mean, you just have to look at the news, and the fraternities still haven't figured out that you're not supposed to kill each other by drinking. I mean, that's it's ridiculous. And and yeah. these are, these are the smartest people in the country. These are good schools. And they're still making the same mistake. Right. I could see it happen once, but every year the same mistake in the same place. It, it just doesn't make sense. And that travels over to here. To me, one of the, the things that I always worked on is respect the people you work with, respect the people that you work for, work as hard as you can, and the rest is easy. Right. So that's super as long as you advice. do that, yeah. you're in. Yeah, I hundred percent I agree. I you know, when you I know for me when I when I go to work. I'm just so happy to be there. You know, I love the guys I work with. We have such a good time together, and we, we try to, you know, we have fun. But when the bell rings, we know how to turn, on, turn that switch on, too. Right. You know, to make sure, you know, the difference. Especially now, because now more than ever, you use phones. Everyone's recording you. Everyone, everyone's got a phone. Everyone's recording right. everything right. you're doing. You're under the microscope constantly. Well, the, the fire service itself changed in my time, in, and you're not that far behind me. Um, and for the better. It, it's a pain in the neck being under the microscope, but I remember when I first got in the fire service and somebody got killed in the line of duty, the story stayed hidden in the smoke of that city or that community. And slowly it's evolved now where instead of keeping everything in-house, we want to learn from it. And that, that's only started like maybe in the 80s or the late 80s. Before that, it wasn't that they were hiding anything. It's just that people didn't think to share it. Right. And there was no social media or any right, of that right, kind right. of stuff. And even the magazines were, were changing. Because before Firehouse Magazine, there was Fire Chief and Fire Engineer. Yes. Yep. And it, it was different. Like right. There were lessons learned, but it was more about hose placement and all you know, technical stuff. Instead of like when Dennis made Firehouse Magazine, he wanted people to look at a magazine and get an idea of what it's like in the kitchen, what it's like on the apparatus floor. And that was a whole different way of looking at it. So now the media about the fire service was changing. Right. And, you know, the, the popularization of firefighting was changing because all these things were changing at the same time on the outside. And I'm aware of them now. Things were happening that I didn't pay much attention to of course, like California did, does things and did things differently than we do. It's the exact same thing, but with a different model. Right. Like um, L.A. County, they don't have, they used to have one big rescue truck. Then they decided to go with smaller rescue trucks and spread them all over the place. And that works for them because they have an area where it's up and down and mountains and this, you know, all over. New York City... When they made a rescue company, they put it in this borough and then that borough, and it was a big truck with guys on it, and the models worked for that department. So it was one of the things, too, that you have to realize that just because that department is doing it different, it doesn't mean you're better or they're better. It just works for them. Right. So. And, and that's the, you're right, that's the one great thing about now is you're able to see how everyone works, mm -hmm. whereas years back, you, you had no idea unless you picked up fire engineering or... Right. Firehouse magazine. And you have to look at things realistically, too, because even a photograph that's one two thousandth of a second or however long it takes a shutter to click, 
you don't know what happened five minutes before that. You don't know what happened two minutes after that. And right. everybody will criticize them. Oh, yeah, gosh. Uh, you know, back in the day, too, oh, his boots were down, and how can you put a fire out? You know, it's all this crazy stuff. And, and there's a lot of people, safety is a wonderful idea. Because if you get injured for no apparent reason at this fire and you can't go to the next one, that's probably the one we would have needed you at. Right. So to me, safety is important. <clears throat> but I think it's, you have to realize it's a dangerous job and all the aspects of it are dangerous. And you right. can't litigate safety. You can't just pass a law to firefighters have to be safe. I was a surfer for many years and some do-gooders wanted to make a law that said that you had to wear a life jacket so you couldn't drown. Well, I want to get underwater. If that board's up in the air, I want to get away from the board. Right, smashing the face. Making me a sitting duck with a life jacket. So it's the people that have good intentions but bad information. Hopefully, they don't get to rule the roost to make the rules. Right. That's yeah. It's a good point. It's a good way to look at it. And unfortunately, now you see more than ever. Um, it's that Monday morning quarterbacking. Yeah. Constantly. I mean, and if it, it frustrates me, especially if they're not even they're not aware of that job or if they're not on that job or they seen it, like you said, the conditions before or after the photograph, you know, is a, is a whole story to tell. You, you know, they're showing, you know, the media is really good at that too. They show a small portion of the right. whole video, right. you know, to illustrate their point, but, but it's true. So it was good that you're part of a, an engine company. And then did you go to right to a truck company at that point? Yeah, I was on, uh, I remember how that happened also. I'm on the roof of uh, 25 trucks building. It's a Sunday morning drill. And in those days, it was pretty hands-on. The safety harnesses first came out, the bailout systems, they were relatively new, and we were practicing with them. The guys were sliding off the roof, down the front of the building, sliding down the back, um, just doing all sorts of stuff. And I'm on the parapet watching guys. I've already gone a couple times watching guys go, and the captain of, the, of Ladder 25 looks at me and he says, uh, so when are you coming over? <laughs> and I just looked at him, because I guess I'd only been in... 74 a little over a year right and i said well i don't know i when do you think i'm ready and he says oh, i talked to your captain i think you're ready already if you want to come over i'll put the paperwork in and i was i was floored again here's somebody and i i don't know if it's the past path of least resistance but it's the opportunities that availed themselves because i did want to go to the ladder company because every time there was a detail i would take it right you know i'd love being in 74 but i wanted to go work in the ladder company and boom now I'm in a ladder company, and great guys, different mission, and enjoyed that. And before uh, I left there, um, I ended up being the chauffeur. And I'm, I'm kind of a young guy to be a chauffeur, but I was driving fire trucks in Freeport, and I guess it was just one of those that were asking senior guys to me, and some of them want, nah, I don't want nothing to do with it. So, Plus, I was working on the rig a lot, and um, next thing I know, I'm driving the captain. And I'm a relatively young guy, but, right. you know, it's great. And uh, well, then, then, well, then the captains change, and I get this other captain, uh, George McGann, who was a, a really good guy, too. And, you know, learn, I learned from the other captain, Wallace, learned all sorts of good stuff. I had a couple of excellent lieutenants. And one guy that came to us, and I'll, I'll never forget his style, he would sit us, the young guys down, uh, Bruce Newberry, who was a firefighter here, still is, uh, came into 74 right after I did, and then he eventually came to 25, as I did. And uh, both of us are in 25 now. And this new lieutenant to us, 
This guy's been on the job for years, and he's right. sitting down. He's asking us what we do. I, I'm new to this area, and he's seeing how smart we are and what we do. And we're sitting there explaining how everything works. And I, I realized after I was done, you know, explaining to him how everything goes, that he was just feeling us out if we had any idea of what we were doing. Right. And I, I always tried to take a little something from the bosses, you know, to, to save for when I would need it, because I'm not going to get the order in New York City, oh, put a hose over here or put a ladder over there. But how you get things done and how they're thinking, you know, it's like playing hockey. You start playing right. with somebody, you don't have to talk to them because you kind of know. Yeah. And the same thing in a fire. Like Bruce and I worked together so often that we had a thing where we would just look at each other and, it, and we were different. We would do different things. But I knew what he would do and he knew what I would do. So we kind of knew where, where we were going and what we were doing all the time. Nah, it's, you know, you, it's you just, can't put a price like on that. Oh, it was amazing. And, yeah. you know, and, and it, paid for, it paid for itself time after time after sure. time where we, we were ending up in the right spot and getting things done either here or in the city. It was, it was a lot of fun. So while you're, you're in the city and you're under the truck company now, um, do you have any memorable fires when you're on the truck company, that things that stand out to you? Um, I think the I made a, a rescue when I was in the engine, just by dumb luck. I like to tell a story when I'm teaching new recruits or, or anyone who will listen. Uh, it was a, a warm evening, and it was backstep days still. And we went out the door to the same box maybe four times, so back in the pull box days. Right, right. So some knuckleheads pulling the fire alarm box to watch the trucks come. That's his fun. So I guess about the third or fourth time we go out, I'm looking at the other, the senior guys on the rig, and I'm the only one getting dressed. I got the bunker, bunker I'm, I got the coat on, right. my boots are up, my flaps are down, I got a scot on, and the sweat is just pouring off me and they're laughing. You know, guys, <laughs> stupid, get on, you know. And we go back to the firehouse, put everything, and out we go again, and I put all the stuff on and all the stuff on. So I guess it's the fourth time we're at the same box up on Broadway, and I'm standing there drenched, and the officer yells, get on, get on the rig, we gotta run. So I'm on the back step, and I got two guys with me, they're in t-shirts and boots, so they're just seconds away from getting dressed, but I'm dressed. Right. And we're going, and I remember hitting a bump, and I'm up in the air, and the, they got their arms out to make sure that we don't lose the probie off the back step here. <laughs> and uh, I guess it's not a probie, but the, don't, don't hurt the young guy. And we pull up, and they're screaming, there's a kid trapped. It's a high-rise. And the lieutenant turns around, and I'm completely dressed, and the other guys are, it's a matter of 10 seconds away, but he just goes, you, come with me. So when I go, and... That's that being I, prepared all the time. I went to the left, he went to the right, I find the kid. So... Wow. The moral of the story is to the kids, yeah. Be prepared all the time. Yeah, get dressed. Don't stand there and wait for something to happen. If you're ready before it happens, then you're ready. If you're just there, you're not ready. You're yeah. there. Right, you're there. Yeah. That that's a really good that's a really good message to to bring point to because that's something we preach all the time to the young guys is I know it's a fire alarm. I know we've been there twice. But that's a perfect example. That, it's the difference. You have to be ready for battle all the time. Right. You can't you can't one of the things that I, I realized over the years, and I try to explain to younger guys especially, um, you shouldn't find yourself in a position where you ever say, I didn't expect that to happen. 
because why did you think it's going to be good? Right. The building's already on fire, right. so things are going horribly wrong already. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's right. it's like when the fire duty stopped in Freeport, it, it slowed down dramatically. Now it's normal, and guys are like, "Oh, it's not busy like it used to be." Well, it's not supposed to be. Right. You know? Imagine prevent- trying to sell your house right. while the house next door is burning down. You know, right. but that's how it was. You yeah. know, fire prevention's working. Yeah, you know, we were when I first got in in a truck company, we were doing. October was our busiest month three years in a row where we had 10 working fires. And if it wasn't out the windows or down the hallway, we didn't even count it. Wow. We'd give it a half. Holy so 10 Queen Anne's. And all the time I did in New York City, I never went to one house fire. But I went to hundreds in Freeport, so it evened out. Well, that's one of my questions is um, how was the balance between a volunteer company and, and a career company in New York City the best? So was it... Were you getting a little rising from the from the career guys because you run a volunteer company, or was it accepted widely? I, I think a little bit. I, I didn't. I kept my mouth shut pretty much when I was in there. Uh, in proby school, um, I certainly didn't say a word. And every opportunity that was to volunteer to do something, I was doing it. Like going into the smokehouse more times than you should have been going. And one guy's looking at me like, you know, because I already knew how to breathe smoke because I had done it. Not that it's a good thing, children. Uh, <laughs> But that's one of the things I think is lost now. Um, when I broke in, you breathe smoke. Mm-hmm. And when I was old enough to be training people, you breathe smoke. And we used to run around the building and then go inside and be on the floor and then make you stand up and sing beer commercial songs or whatever. And the idea was to get a respect for the smoke, see what you could take. Um, yes, yeah, so you don't panic under conditions. Right. It, it's, yeah. it's not a healthy thing to do for your lungs and your body, but I think to keep you alive, it's a really good thing to do. There was a probie in New York City at, for one or two classes. Uh, I think it was pressure from OSHA, no live fires, and they were telling the young firefighters there that if your mask gets knocked off, you're going to die. And at least that's what I believe was happening. And this poor guy goes out, it was a really bad fire, and his mask got knocked off. And sadly, he died. And the doors weren't far away from where he was. And it was a tremendously bad fire. But it's like when you go diving, one of the first things they teach you is how to take your mask off and put it back on underwater. They don't want you to take it off underwater. But if it gets knocked off, you better know how to put it on. So I think trying to be super safe, they missed a peg, which is you're going to have to breathe a little bit of smoke. And maybe things would have been different for that lad. I don't know. I wasn't there. But maybe it would have been different if he didn't think he was going to die. And he would have just, you know, knew the drill. Had, right. Had done the drill. Right. And it, take it off and put it on. To me, you know, it's that warrior mindset. You know, I'm not, whatever it takes, I'm going to live. No matter what it takes. You know, but it's, yeah. it's difficult if, you know. There's a lot to it. And, and, yeah. and having been in the volunteer sector all the way to chief of department, and chief instructor and all that. I understand what it is. Uh, I got to be what I wanted to be in New York City. I got to be the chauffeur rescue one for many years. You know, I was studying, but only half-heartedly. I was reading novels at the same time, so you really can't. You know, if they were, I'd do well in Jeopardy, but the <laughs> lieutenant's test, I, I was kind of missing a little bit. Um, but you, you get out what you put in, and. And if you're a boss, you have, it's not just you, it's everybody else. So whoever was making the decision at that time, they weren't 
trying to make a mistake. They were trying to do right. what the best thing was. Right. And as it turns out, they adjusted it as they went along. But it always stuck in my head that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe things would have been different. But you can't go back. Things, you know, things happen. You can't undo them. Paul, bring me back to uh, when you and I had spoke on the phone. You, you mentioned to me uh, there was a line of duty death here in Freeport mm. um, that affected you. Can you, can you reflect on that? Well, yeah, it affected everybody. Obviously, um, as I mentioned, when right as I was coming to truck company, right before I came to truck company, I, I went to take the test in New York City. And um, it was Joey, Jerry, and me went to take the test. And Jerry was um, at a fire in Freeport. And I believe he was on the list to go there too, you know, to the city and everything. And it was a really, really bad fire. They were doing a search, ran out of air. And guys tried really hard. It was before radios. We knew there was a May Day, but, um, you know, they, they got him, but they didn't get him in time. So here's a friend of mine that dies in the line of duty. I guess I've been in the department about a year and a half, two years. I've been to civilian fatalities. I've been to fires where firefighters got killed. I'm a little bit older than the average recruit, so it's striking me right off the bat that this is serious business. We're having a, a who, but you can get killed doing this. My friend just got killed. You know, I'm at the funeral. And I went to take the city test with this guy. And he was a good fireman. And it was a bad night. And it wasn't for lack of trying. They did, I'm still relatively new watching what these guys are doing from various companies. Guys from truck company were just hurling themselves in windows trying to find this kid. Yeah. And it just showed me, you know, I'm watching the better guys. And I'm watching how they're reacting. And I'm knowing more and more what I want to do. And I want to be able to think like they're thinking and react like they're, rea they're reacting. Uh, of course, you know, Jerry lingered in the hospital for a while. But if he would have made it, it would, it would have been because of what those guys did. It's, it's beyond valor. Being brave is wonderful. But if you don't know what you're doing, then you're just another fatality waiting to happen. Right. You know, these guys knew what they were doing, and, and they were up against it. It was, it was a tough fire. It was... It was the only fire, I think, that I saw where the pump operator in the back of the building had a mask on. I mean, it was that bad a fire. It started in the building next door, and the smoke was so bad into the, uh, the occupied building next door that it was just terrible. So that, right away, it set me on a mindset of yeah. the seriousness of what we're doing. Well, I was going to say, do you think that fire had an impact on you personally as far as your future as a firefighter? It did to the degree that I was, I took it even more seriously. Um, I kind of knew, as far as the city went, a couple things happened to me. When I was a little kid, I had my tonsils out, and my grandfather had already got me a fleet of fire trucks. You know, you couldn't walk around the house without stepping on a fire truck. <laughs> it's awesome. And um, he would show me how the hoses hooked together and all this stuff. And then he got me this rescue truck. It was a little different. Civil, said civil defense on the side of it, but. Oh, yeah. Rescue. Yeah, it's blue, right? Yeah. So uh, I asked him, well, what did they do? And he says, oh, they rescue firemen. So here I am, five years old, going, wow, I, I like those. I, I like that <laughs> idea. How good do you have to be to, to go rescue firemen? So kind of in the back of my head, it was always there. And then Bruce and I are in 74 engine one night. We roll in first due at a really, really bad subway fire. 
And we go to the emergency exit, and we've been going around checking hydrants, doing building inspection, doing the subway emergency exit drills. I mean, we were good. We had great people teaching us, and we were doing everything by the book all the time. We knew how everything worked, and, and here it is. Here's our big job, and we get there. We open it up, and this cotton candy comes out, hot cotton candy. It is ugly. Yeah. And we'll look at him, and we're like, let's go, let's go. And the chief is standing there looking at it. I got a clean 74 front piece on. Bruce still has a proby shield on. Rescue one pulls up. He goes, all right, son, wait there. Rescue, come here. And he sent them down. <laughs> so I'm standing there looking. Gee, that ain't right, you know. That's my job, you know. <laughs> all right. So then, uh, all right, 74, go over to Broadway. We get there. Equally as bad, we open the thing up, and we're just about ready to go. The different chief is looking at that, shaking his head. And uh, we hear sirens. Rescue four comes. I'm standing there. Rescue, they came from Queens to cut ahead of me? I said, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I want to get in those trucks. <laughs> and Bruce agreed that, yeah, we want. So we kind of was setting our sights that that's where we wanted to go if we could get there. Right. Just for the fact that that's where I wanted to be. Yeah. You know, you want to go I, work. I love these guys, right. but I wanted to go there. And those guys didn't go there because we were young. So the chief is just being smart. Why send these brand new kids down there? This just does not look good down there. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what we would have done, but I wanted to go. <laughs> and eventually I was that guy that was going, so that made so, me happy. So after the truck company, 25 truck, then did you get into a sock company or you go right into the FD, right into the rescue company? There was no sock yet. Okay, it wasn't developed um, yet. No. Okay. No. Um, I had a good friend of mine, Chris Gliana, who was a chief in Baldwin, the next town over. We had done many fires. Mostly Baldwin was coming to Freeport in those days, but occasionally we went there and worked a couple of really tough fires with him. And he was in Rescue One, so I wanted to be pals with him immediately yeah. when I found out yeah. where he worked. And I guess I was showing him the right thing at, at fires and you know, sitting and talking afterwards. And he went and he was talking to the captain there, and he grabs me. He's about to be promoted, and he grabs me and says, well, you know, come down. I, I talked to the captain about you. And I said, well, I'm not even first grade yet. And I figured, you know, every year you move up a grade. And he goes, come and talk to the captain. I talked to him. So I came there and I had an interview with the captain, told him about climbing telephone poles. And he told him about working Oh, that's here. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that I worked, you know, that I worked in Freeport. And he wasn't a volunteer, but he lived, near, you know, not too far away. And So he, he knew the reputation of Freeport. He, he heard of Freeport trucks, so, you know, it didn't hurt. Um, and then I guess he talked to the people that I had worked with and all the rest, and he told them, I'll call you, you know, stay in touch with me, but I'll get a hold yeah, of you. Yeah, because Rescue One, they're vetting their people. They're not, right. you're not he, just coming in. In those days, the captain picked his officers and his firefighters. Handpicked. Handpicked. And he had the luxury of, I wasn't the only young guy. He took uh, maybe four or five or six young guys over the period of nine months or a year. And I got, I sat in the back of that truck. I went there in um, February of 83. Wow. And I sat in the back of the truck and the guy sitting next to me had 20 years in the company. He had 15 years in the company. He had 10 years in the company. And the driver had 40 years on the job and 25 in the company. So he figures, I I'm there to carry things. That's the way I'm looking at it. I'm not going to carry this company. I'm going right. to help them carry all the equipment right. and learn. And man, did I learn. I mean, I learned every step of the way, but now all of a sudden it's a different assignment. And it's when, if things are going right, they don't need you. It's right. when things are going wrong. What was it like for you 
to, to get the nod to go to rescue one. Oh, it's amazing. And again, Joanne was just shaking her head because she knew I'm telling her all this stuff about what's happening in there. And I tried not to bring the crazy stuff home, you know, the death and destruction, but she knew what I thought about a rescue company and that I wanted to go there. And then all of a sudden, her telephone man that went into the volunteers and then went to the city fire department and isn't home two or three nights a week is now going to potentially the most dangerous place that when it gets really bad, oh good, send these guys in. Right. And, you know, God bless her, she put up with it because, you know, she was worried sick. But to me, that's exactly where I wanted to go, yeah. especially with those guys when I started working with them. I mean, what these guys, and it was the same thing. It was slightly, because they were senior guys, it, it, it was the same thing but subtler. You know, the firehouse banter and fooling around. There was no buckets of water or any of that stuff. There was still grab ass and, and, right, and, right, and all right. the good parts. But there was a seriousness level that was there because it's a giant toolbox and you have to learn everything on that truck, where it is, well, first off, what it is, where it is, then how to use it. It's like an apple. You could take little bites and figure it out or jam the whole thing in your mouth. Right, right. You know, I tried to take little bites and figure it out. And just working with these guys, I remember one of the stories I love to tell, and uh, I, I get asked now, it's there's certain people that you bump into at different ceremonies or yearly events, and, oh, tell them that story. So this is one of those stories. Mr. Riley. Um, Bill Riley was one of the senior men in the company. He looked a little bit like the Mac Bulldog. <laughs> I saw his picture as a longshoreman when he was 17 years old. He's a tough SOB. He looked exactly the same at 16 as he did at 55. Wow. And, uh, you know, chewing nails kind of guy. Yeah. But a sweetheart, a really wonderful man, and super duper at a fire. And, it, and people thought because he was an older guy that, oh, you guys are carrying him. No, no, no. no. I know guys like that. Yeah. So we get we go to a loft building fire. Never went to loft buildings before. Now all of a sudden, all of Manhattan, instead of 12 square blocks, it's all of Manhattan pretty much, you know, at least up into 125th Street, all the way down is what we're covering. So we go to loft building, really high commercial building, high ceilings, and we get in there and we pull up. We've got search ropes, all sorts of equipment that we weren't usually carrying in the ladder company because I'm going to apartment fires. And rescue go up there and search this area. Okay, chief, so up we go. I'm with the captain. And even the captain called him, Mr. Riley. Mr. Riley, stay by the door. All right, cap. So in we go. We're crawling around, crawling around. And I guess we're in there maybe 10 minutes. And you hear from the door, hey, Cap, we shouldn't ought to be here. Next thing I know, the captain's got a hold of me. Fine, come on, let's go, let's go. We get out, we get down to the half landing. Looking at, he, he's talking on the radio, talking to him downstairs. All of a sudden, boom, fire everywhere. He said, wow, that's amazing. These, you know, these guys are amazing. How did, that's incredible. Now, if I had been a smarter man, I would have asked Bill that night how he knew that, but I waited till the second time it happened. And it was almost the exact same thing. It was about a month later. Almost the exact same kind of fire. In we go. Cap, we shouldn't ought to be here. Now, nobody has to grab me. I'm already going. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And out we go, and boom, the thing takes off again. So after the fire's out, we're riding back, and I'm sitting in the back of the truck with Mr. Riley, and the rescue truck, you sit sideways right, in the right, back. Right. So I said, Mr. Riley, how do you know when to leave? And I, I used to talk like Donald Duck a lot when I was younger. 
And, uh, and he called me Duck. He goes, well, Duck, I tell you what. I take my glove off. I stick the hook over my head. And I take it down. And I touch it to see how hot it is. And when I take it down, I can't hold my hand on it anymore. We shouldn't be there. So it was a thermal indication device Jesus. before there were cameras. He just could tell because it's 10 feet way over his head. He's taking the temperature six feet over his head by, with the hook he has. Oh, my gosh. That's unbelievable. It's, it's low-tech genius. And all those little things that you just start pulling in and, and putting into your quiver, you know, like yeah. all, all these yeah. little things in your mind. Wow. And, and then sitting around, and to me, one of the best things is to sit around the table in the oh, firehouse God, yeah. and just tell stories. Because I heard stories about Tom Neary being a firefighter and then an officer up in uh, Harlem in the Bronx. He got the Bennett Medal twice. I mean, making these spectacular rescues. And a friend of mine telling me he was at the fire and he saw them take the door off a closet in one of the off apartments and go down the hallway behind the door to make a rescue. Like, wow, that's, you know. And then later, years later, I find out Smokey Joe Martin was doing the same thing in the Rockaways, trying to go down the block, hiding behind doors as a barrier. And we get a fire in Freeport one night when I'm captain. They torch the house in the middle. They must have put 10 gallons of gas in this place. Oh, man. It lifted it up off the foundation turned it slightly, sat it back down. Uh, the water tower was getting painted. We have two water towers, a million gallons over here and a half million over there. The local water tower is down. It's not working. Holy cow. It's, it's looking nice. The paint is nice and shiny, but there's no water. <laughs> no water in it, yeah. And um, we pull up, and the chief, you know, transmitted second alarm immediately. And I'm looking at the fire building and realizing as captain, we're not going in there. There's fire just everywhere in this yeah. Queen Anne. So I send half my guys to the exposure four. I take a bunch of people and go in exposure two. I get up. The window's broken. There's radiant heat coming right in. It's about ready to, to light off, and it's even the fire is actually almost penetrating into the building. Go downstairs and take a door off the closet and bring it up here. And they get a dumb look. Take the halligan, take the door off, and bring it up here. And we put it up, and we hold it, and we make a screen, you know, to cover the and keep the fire out. Wow. They thought I was a genius. No, it was a story I heard about Tom Neary in the Bronx. Right. That should work here. That, I didn't invent it. I just used it at a different operation. And to me, that's the story you tell that somebody goes, ah, maybe they'll do that somewhere. Yep. Because all of a sudden you have a shutter. Well, that was one of my questions to you is, you know, tell me what that firehouse kitchen is to you. What does that mean to you? Well, th that's it. it. The fun of it is great. All the craziness, make-believe lottery tickets, all the nonsense that goes on, you know, messing with people's food or whatever. But the real nitty-gritty one, when guys, when guys start really explaining and fires where, where, you, where they learn something and they want to give it to you, to me, that's the best part. And even something like that here in the Neary story, they didn't tell me that story for the other fire. They just told me a story that they heard about somebody right. that they thought was that you could learn something from it. Wow, I never thought of that. So as soon as you get something, I never thought of that, then you go. Because realistically, one of the things that we train people in, uh, in technical rescue or in firefighter rescue, you know, May Day stuff, I always tell guys that you're not gonna have a light bulb moment. It's not suddenly gonna be, oh, my friend is trapped, and it's suddenly gonna come to me no. that I know what to do. No, your friend is trapped. You're gonna be frantic. 
Yeah. You're going to do what you know how to do. Training. Nothing more. Training, training, training. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And that was one of the things that when I, I got to work, now I worked with tremendous bosses. Every, every single one of them brought a lot to the table. John Norman I drove for years and got to be you know really close personal friends. And he was teaching the whole world all these things, and he was teaching us. You know, we'd see the slideshows and all right. this. So we learned an awful lot about building construction and all that kind of stuff. And then he got pulled into headquarters. They had him doing things while he's captain, captain waiting to get promoted to chief. And they send us Terry Hatton, who was more a contemporary of mine. Even though John and I are the same, he had been in rank a little longer, and he was on his way to, you know, to go to be a chief. And Terry comes. And they were similar as teachers, but different personalities. Um, and, and Terry and I just, you know, as I did with all the captains, we just hit it off, though. It was, it was amazing. And John had these wonderful technical drills and really was one of the first people that had, had us thinking about firefighter rescue as an art form. Like the, all the other previous captains did it, but it was right at that time when it was evolving right. after John Nance and all those different oh, things yeah, yeah. where yep. the smoke was clearing from all the other fires where people are getting killed and we're actually trying to set up a protocol. And John was one of the first to do that. And then when Terry came, he was taking it to the next step. And then he did something that I really thought was amazing. One of the things you do is, as a new guy in the rescue company is you learn to use a torch. And there's a certain amount that you can learn about a torch. And then it's just the art form, whether you're any good at it or not. And all of a sudden, Terry started doing things with the drill that really surprised me. And then when I realized what he was doing, tickled me because he was doing the same thing over and over subtly, but making it harder, but in a simple way. For instance, you have a piece of metal, you cut it up here, okay, good, all right, write your name in it, whatever, all right. Now, go up and do that on a ladder. So you go up and you do it on the ladder. Now, he'd have it suspended, go underneath and cut above. And guys would go, why do I have to do that? And he says, you go into a building collapse, there's people trapped there, there's firefighters trapped. You don't know what position you're gonna be in. Lay down and do it that way and learn to keep the slag from com coming down on you. So you were tying the same knot virtually. Right. It's just a figure eight. It's not a flying Walinda knot or any crazy thing. It's a simple torch drill that got incrementally a little more difficult. And it wasn't one of those drills where the old timers keep giving you problems until you fail, which I've been to many of those, and they think, ha-ha, we got you. No, he just kept showing you that you know how to cut metal, you don't know how to cut metal. You have to be able to do it upside down. All these crazy things that when you put them together, that when you see something now that is a little challenging, ha, we already did that. Wow. Yeah. You know, and that was just something that, and he just took it, all the things that I had been learning, he was as good as all the rest. He was just slightly different, and it just, you know, enamored me that, you know, wow, I, I really like that style of, of teaching. What was it like, like to work with him, to be on, the, on, on jobs with him? Oh, he, like all of them, one of the really cool things about seeing the rescue officers is most of the time, some people hated us. I could understand why. I, I wasn't too happy when they went in front of me at right. the subway. The example you give, right? Um, yeah. But they're there for a reason. Most of the time, you're not really needed. You're just manpower, which is fine. But when those jobs come, when, when, you, when I got to see 
uh, Captain O'Flaherty or John Norman or any of the other great captains that I had come up to a chief and have the chief turn to him and say, this is what's happening. What do you think? And I just thought that was so cool because that's what they were originally set up to do back in 1915 when they started the rescue company. The way the orders were written up, it's the company got two and a half months of training, which was unheard of, on specialized equipment, among them the torch, right. the smoke helmets. They were the only guys that had really had smoke helmets. They didn't use them except under special circumstances. They were breathing smoke like yeah. everybody else. And there were six on a rig. Yeah. I'm and, and, and then when they would go to use it, the idea was they didn't want the chief to think he could just go put those helmets on and go in there because you, the chief didn't know what it was like to wear those helmets. So the way the order was written is the chief will discuss it with the company officer and the officer will determine if the company could go to work because they didn't want to just march into the cannons. And that was an orthodox then. Well, it was a little bit different. It yeah. Was, yeah, it was, certainly was different, but the company was different. Right. And... I don't know if they ever said, no, nah, Chief, we really can't do that. But I've been to jobs where, no, nah, maybe we can't do that, but let's try something different. You know, I never saw them turn down an order. But the idea was that you just can't blindly send people because it was brand new. Nobody knew what the hell these smoke helmets were. They looked like deep sea divers or sponge divers or something. Yeah. You know, go, go solve my problem. That's The Chief wanted the fire to go out. So it, it was so cool because I've always known the Rescue One logo. It's, you know... Everyone knows it. But when I read your book and I got to see what the logo means and how the logo came to be because of the early years of Rescue One, that was so cool. I'm like, that's now I figured it out. And I, yeah. it makes sense now. Yeah. You know, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is neat. And, and to look at how that, one of the PowerPoints that I do is on the history of Rescue One and to take um, the earliest days, they had uh, a torch, they had the smoke helmets. Um, two of the smoke helmets, they kept half the, half the helmets on the rig, the other half back at the firehouse, always working on them. One helmet in each group had a telephone right. that they could snap right. into, and they could talk to you on the outside. Um, they had bottle jacks. They had some little hand saws. You have to remember the hook and ladder companies, the engines only had hose, a bunch of nozzles, and, you know, hydrant wrenches. It's not like fire trucks today. You you went to a hook and ladder company. There weren't toolboxes and all this stuff. They just didn't have the money. They or they didn't have the need. You were handed a Halligan, and that's why if you lost your tool, you know there's nothing to replace it with. Right. You know you look at the old pictures. One guy, one tool. Look on the rig. It's empty. Yeah. You know the rescue truck was the only one that had this all these tools on it. Like my God, you know pipe wrenches and all different sizes and so and that built from this little thing into the giant trucks that we know now. Huge toolboxes, right? Yeah, year five after year. Yeah, and, and, the, and the idea that you have to know everything on that truck. You're not just here for the fires, you're here for everything. Like some guys just want to go to fires. And yeah, that's cool, me too. But you have to know everything on that rig. Otherwise, you're just a glorified, you know, manpower pool. Right. You know, you might as well be pulling up in a bread truck know like the old squads they were really good for what they did but they would and they did a tremendous fire duty but it was an empty truck with a couple of masks in it and they would go and do what they had to do but they didn't have this cache of stuff and all that equipment is useless if you don't know how to do use it, it. Yeah, yeah yeah absolutely so would you say captain hatton um was 
was he different to work with than the other captains, or would you say he was the same? Well, they're, they're, all, they're all exactly the same and completely different at the same time. Right, right, right. Just, you know, like all your uncles. They're, they're your uncles, but they're all a little different. I liked working with each of them. I think, you know, sadly, because we lost Terry, it's even a little more mythical. Right. I guess, um, I guess that's what I mean. You yeah. Know, I, he was definitely cut sad, short. Sadly, all those guys, you know, did, and, and not just the guys in rescue on it. And I, I, I heard somebody... I think Ronnie Buka's wife mentioned to me one time that uh, she was talking with uh, the family, a woman whose husband was killed that was just working there. He was a, not a firefighter or a cop, and he was just working there. And the woman kind of was chagrinning a little bit that, you know, it's, they always just talk about the cops and the firemen and everything, and, and, you know, and not the people. They forget the people. And she just calmly said to us, but that's why my husband was there. They pulled up for you, for your family. You know, they, they remember him because they ran in, but they went there. So you know who remembers them? We do, because that's why we lost our people to save you. We wouldn't just go run in there to try to save a building. Right. It was the people in there, you know, and they don't know exactly what everybody was doing, but they were doing their jobs. They were doing what they did every single day. And... I think I've had a couple of people, you know, the YouTube thing is funny. Um, I'd be at a book signing or something like that, and I'd see a little boy walk up, and he'd just look at me. And I knew he, he saw the movie. Because once once you're a little kid, you see somebody on television, right. and all of a sudden you see them. It's like, holy man, there, there he is. Yeah. And I didn't know what it was at first, and then after that I'd get a tickle, because it didn't happen often, but I, they got that look, and then sometimes yeah. their father had that look too. And people say, oh, do you remember this? In the, I saw the movie twice, you know. Right. I, I saw it when they had it on the, the film festival, and then right. I showed it to my family once, and I don't watch it every day like you do. Or, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's on YouTube. But, right. and, uh, but, you know, there's a lot there. And, and to see the guys um, that I can go back there and click and see them, that's just wonderful because then I do, I do get refreshed on this job or that job and... You know, Terry was a big guy, and he had a big, loud laugh, you know, and he was, he used to yell, outstanding. Uh, give you an idea, he was just getting, he had been the company, I'm not exactly sure, but it was over a year where he was the captain, but he wasn't the captain, because okay. John Norman was in transition. It was a new thing they were doing, where the captains were learning to be like chiefs with chiefs to get the actual street exposure, which okay. was a great, great idea, and then John was given other things to do at headquarters. So Terry was there, and he knew he was going to be the captain, but he didn't want to start doing things while John still was the captain on paper. So all of a sudden, Terry's captain, okay. So he says to me, I've been thinking, now I'm driving. I'm driving a rig, we're on our way back from a fire. He says to me, I'm thinking about taking the Stanley off the rig. Now, the Stanley system is a big, giant hydraulic pump on wheels takes up a whole compartment. There's a diamond chainsaw. There's all these different pieces of equipment, a pump to pump water, all these things. But it does take up a lot of space. And I said, Cap, why would you want to do that? He goes, well, it takes up so much more room, we could put other stuff there. I said, nah, I, you know, I, I, think, it's, I think it's important. I, I think this. He goes, but they're on the TAC units, and we could special call them, and they're going to come. I said, Cap, this is a concrete city. And we pull up, and there's firefighters trapped under the concrete. I don't want to wait for a TAC unit. We're rescue one. 
So we're back in the firehouse. He goes up to the office, and about a half hour later, we're going out to something else, and on the way, he just turns to me and he goes, you're right, ha, it's staying on. So I just start laughing, like, this is great, you know. And about two weeks later, we're at a, a school. They were repointing the bricks or whatever, and there was a collapse, and all the stuff, a guy was banged up, and we're helping take care of him, and we got the Stanley system going. And now he is 50 yards away from me, up on uh, in a towel ladder bucket, and they're working out of the bucket, and he looks down at me and goes, outstanding! And I know exactly what he's talking about. Because, and and what it showed me is he's the captain. He can, you know, choose what clubs go in the bag. And he listened to one of the senior guys. Yeah. And, and that he thought enough to ask his chauffeur, what do you think about this idea? That's a good and leader then, right and there. And then pondered it and said, yeah, you're right. And then as soon as, soon as it worked, my little idea, as soon as it worked, he let me know that. He gave it recognition. It was cool. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of guy he was. And all the other bosses were like that too. But that's one of the, the things that sticks out. You know, to me about Terry, because he, he was that that neater guy, really cool guy. So, I can't sit here and not ask you what it was like for you the day that, you know, you're in Rescue One, it's a regular day, and next thing you know, you're diving in after some news reporters, that helicopter crash. Walk me through that. Well, it's funny, the whole dive thing, because that was the second time I was involved in a dive rescue. Um, as a kid, my father was probably one of the original scuba divers on Long Island. Uh, if not one of the first, you know, certainly. And he used to get his stuff right across the street. There was a sporting goods store, and he used to go to Florida with his friends. So dive equipment was always around my house. But I had problems with my sinuses. And I would go to the bottom of the canal just on a breath-holding dive and feel pressure. And, I, no, I don't want to do this. It hurts. So instead, I didn't learn the tricks that I learned later in diving, how to make the headache go away. I'm a little kid that says, no, I want to go surfing. You can go underwater. I'm staying on the top. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm in, I'm in the fire department. I'm in Rescue One, and they're going for dive training. It's, I get there right as the dive program starts. Oh, no kidding. Which is kind of cool, yeah. They were six months ahead of me, some of the guys in the classes, but they weren't official yet. So I got to be there when it became official. It was kind of cool. And I tell my father, oh, I'm taking dive lessons. And he's looking at this the little kid that was getting the headaches. You're taking dive lessons? So I go for the dive classes and learn all this wonderful, interesting stuff. And I remember the instructor was amazed at how good we were doing the searches. And I remember sitting and talking with him. He had been a Navy SEAL and all oh, this wow. kind of stuff. Wow. And he's saying, but you guys just take to water. And he says, no, we're taking to blackness. Right. You put us on the bottom of a river. We're used you're, to that. You're taking us by a rope and you send us around. It's the same thing about crawling around a tenement. I find people by bumping into them. You know, right, right. It's the same thing, except they're underwater. And, oh, we, you know, we didn't realize that. And, again, it's being ready and, and having the equipment ready. So we're at one fire on the east side. One of the few times I ever had a smoke ejector taken off the rescue rig and they were using it at a high rise and then they're yelling on the radio, they got a helicopter in the river. So we go to that one and I was the first guy dressed. So they sent me in and I got a man out of the helicopter and like, whoa, you know, hooray. But to me it was, it works. You know, the training works. Well, what was it like? I mean, well, you, you, you blow past that like, ah, well. Well, that, that one kind of happened like, really like that. Yeah. The second helicopter was more dramatic because I had already been through it. Okay. And I had a chance as it was happening. It's like, here we go again. Right. And um, 
a, a dear friend of mine, Jack Theobald, who was one of the guys that was in Rescue One right before me, and we got to be really, really good friends, super firefighter. Um, he was a gear man. When you're in a rescue company, one of the assignments you have is the gear man. You take care of the equipment. And that's what I wanted to be. It's like, then after that, to be chauffeur. So it's, you know, it's like working your way up in the hierarchy. Some people were just happy to be there. Other people were longing to be right, the right. gear man or whatever. So I'm like the junior gear man or something. So I'm helping Jack. And we used to listen to Soupy Sales because we liked, we remember seeing him as kids on TV and he used to be <laughs> on the radio and we'd listen to all the shenanigans they had. And for whatever reason, we weren't listening that day. We had built this little tool room. Uh, we were on 38th Street with 34 engine and 21 truck at that time. Our firehouse went down in the, the big 10 alarm fire in 85. So we're over here and we're working on stuff and all of a sudden the, the house watch is yelling, get out, helicopter in the water. So I know I'm one of the divers, so I immediately, I get in the back of the rig, I start getting dressed, off we go. And we didn't know that it, that it went down live on the radio. If it happened a day before, we would have been listening, listening to, to it. it but right, we right. just had the radio off for that day for whatever reason. And as we're going, I'm getting dressed thinking, wow, you know, I'm, I'm looking over. I got George Cruiser, another great diver, another great firefighter getting dressed next to me. You know, the, here we go again. You know, wow, right. amazing. And then to get there and just the guys you get to work with. John Driscoll was our senior man. He was driving that day. And he gets over. I'm, I'm standing on the edge of the, the dock, putting still in dry suits. Uh, I mean, wetsuits in those days neoprene wetsuits, yeah. and I'm putting the weight belt on, and Jack's standing next to me with the equipment, and John could swim, but he's not what I would call a swimmer. Like, he's not going to go to the pool or go to the beach. Right. You know, he could swim to save his life. First guy in the water. So, in he goes. There's nothing. You can't see anything. But he saw something, and he goes out, and they're putting a ladder in. So the helicopter wasn't visible at all? Nothing. Not even bubbles. No kidding. Yeah. But people are yelling over there. So... I'm not seeing anything. I'm just making sure I have all the equipment that I need. And I see John swimming out, and I'm thinking, look at this guy, you know. And all of a sudden, he turns to me, and he's like this in the water. And he's going, Paulie, I got it. Come to me, come to me. And he's about 50 yards out. Jesus. And the way the helicopter was down, the rotor blade was up, and he's standing on the on tip the of the rotor, rotor blade. blade. Okay. So I hit the water. I start going right to him and get all the equipment on. I follow his leg down, I hit the rotor blade, follow the rotor blade all the way down, hit the collective or whatever that thing is on the top that what all the blades are connected to. Okay. I go down that and then I find the helicopter door. So now this is all happening so fast uh, and it's that murky green, you know, it's not like the tropical diving that you see. Right, right. This was probably one of the best things, or best dives I had, because usually it's chocolate pudding, at least this was only pea soup, so it wasn't right, too bad. Right. And open the door, and there's a man in a white shirt, and he's like light blue. And then all of a sudden, I snap back, and I'm thinking of the other guy in the other helicopter. So I'm, I saw him out of the uh, the seat. I bring him up, and I hand he, him. He's obviously unresponsive, right? Oh, he's out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's not breathing. Right, he can't right. breathe water. So right, of course. He, right. he ain't breathing. I'm not going to stop and take so this, his pulse. So this was like... This is immediately when it went down. What was do you know the time frame between you got there and when this went down? I mean, the witnesses are like pointing, so it must have just happened. They pressed an ERS box at the um, at the aircraft carrier. There's a museum there. Oh yeah, yes, yes. And so they were on ERS box immediately to the dispatcher, 
the dispatcher yells over the voice alarm, I think, even before they put it in the computer, you know, and the house watch is yelling, get out, rescue. So it's really fast. Okay. So by the time we got there and we're, all, we're on 38th Street to go to 40, 43rd Street, it's like boom. So if it was five minutes, wow. I'd be surprised. And But the man yeah, is yeah. not breathing, right, so yeah. I hand him off to John. And Was it difficult to the door open? Did the door open pretty no, easily? No, the door opened pretty good. It was hard to cut the to cut the belt. And then I hand him off to John, and John says, you know, go get the other one. Cause, and I looked, and I, I didn't see where the second diver was. So, okay. And down I go, and I go to the other seat, and there's nobody in the seat. So now it, it's kind of small, you know. It's like, Is it two two-person helicopter? Yeah. Okay. So it's like a little car, you know. Right, right. The other helicopter I was in was like a small plane because there were rows and rows. It was a commuter helicopter. This is the news helicopter. But And then I look up, and she's floating. She didn't have her seatbelt on. Oh. So I got to pull her out and bring her up and handed her off, and off they go. So I'm trying to take a breath, and I look, and there's a guy in a Gumby suit, you know, floating on the water. So I go over, I'm holding on to him for a second, trying to catch my breath. And I think it was more from the excitement of the thing, of getting everybody else rather than the hard work of it. Um, and I said to the other guy, I'm... Let me go check the bottom, make sure there's nobody else. It's only two seats, but yeah. who knows? Who knows, yeah. So I, I did another little pass on the bottom. So I go back over to the ladder. They've already got both of the people up on into the street. Now 54, 34, uh, and 4 truck and 21 truck were all there, the 9th Battalion. And they are, this is EMS was not there yet. This all happened so fast. Um, they have tarps out. And they're doing a clinic on CPR. They got resuscitators going, and they are just... And I'm standing there feeling guilty because, you know, I did all I could do. But it's like like if you go to a fire, I, I remember coming back from fires and saying to my wife, yeah, we lost somebody last night. But we didn't lose them. You know, the fire, the fire killed them. them. Right. But that's yeah. how we looked at it, you know. Of course. And and here it is with, this, uh, with these people on the street, and they're, they're doing... They're doing CPR and they're doing the resuscitators, and all of a sudden, <clears throat> they yell, "He's breathing." The lieutenant in 54 engine says, "He's breathing." It's like, whoa! I'm soaking wet. I'm wearing a blue neoprene wetsuit with white gym socks on, <laughs> and I'm so emotional. I just start walking south. I was so happy. It's like, oh man. And people look, now I'm walking down 12th Avenue <laughs> in a wetsuit. <laughs> and people are just looking at me, but it's Manhattan. So, okay. Yeah, okay. It's, it's not, it's not uncommon. They'd look maybe twice, but after that. <laughs> so, and, and in those days, I had one of the, uh, the credit card numbers for the pay phones in my head. So I go over and I, I call my wife up. And uh, I said, Joanne, put the news on. You're not in a hospital, are you? <laughs> no, no. This one's pretty good. <laughs> So all of a sudden, sadly, she didn't make it, but right. he, he made it full recovery. Get out of here. Yeah, it was, and he, I think he became a lawyer after that. He didn't want to fly helicopters anymore. I could, I Did could you ever him. have an opportunity to meet him after? I met his family. I met him in the hospital, and I talked to him, but he, had, he still was right. learning who he was right. because he had a memory loss. Um, but I've, I've met people that know him, and his, his, uh, his mother and his wife were fantastic people. He used to get Christmas cards. Every year. Wow. Probably the best thing I have in my collection of stuff is handwritten notes from his kids. That's so cool. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're as cool as anything my grandkids ever did. It's like, oh, you know. 
one of the one of the coolest things like that I have is a. I ended up doing CPR on a firefighter and used the AED and, and brought him back. And uh, his brother, uh, his brother, who's a police officer, came you know, to meet me. And I wasn't there, unfortunately, but he left me a, a handwritten note. And it says, yeah, thank, you, thank you for saving my brother's life and all. I, I still have this to this sure, day. You know, I, sure. I keep it on my bulletin board. But those things, you know. That, that's the amazing thing of it. Yeah. And, and just to, and to have people care that much. I was, a couple days later, I was off. And they tell me, 21 trucks building has a big bay door and a smaller bay door and a wicket door, the little door that opens yeah. in the middle of it. And they get a knock on the door, and a guy sticks his head in, says to the house watch, goes, uh, is this the firehouse where they rescued that uh, guy from the helicopter? And the guy goes, yeah. He goes, I got something for you. So he comes in. He's got two giant crates that are dripping. <laughs> and he drops them in and goes, Lobsters? Lobsters. He never said, but they had to be from the family. That's awesome. And um, I didn't get to eat them, but they said they were very good. <laughs> That's <laughs> which was wonderful. <laughs> That's so cool. What was that? Was that rescue for you your most memorable, most notable? I mean, not just for the sensational part of it, but for you personally. I, I think yeah. For uh, the one, the one on the beam that happened. I, I had another one. Shortly thereafter, I'd have to look in the book to remember which one came first now, but I think it was, uh, I think the helicopter came first. Who came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that, I swear but, to God. <laughs> but, the, but, but the other one, I, we had a fire in a vacant building, and um, they had been illegally demolishing the building in the middle of the night. It was on the news, so I knew the building before we went there, because we had a, a couple small fires in it. And the fact that they were trying to take this building down without permits and all that. So we, we knew the building and we, we didn't like the building. We hated the building. And uh, had been to one decent fire there where I saw Ladder 4 make a chain of hook ladders. They didn't have scaling ladders, but right. they, they took hook ladders because they had the fire escape in the back, but no ladders in between the the uh, balconies, and they, they made a really good grab there one night. So I knew the building and knew how dangerous it was. Uh, and then all of a sudden, we get another good job, and we go in there, and uh, I'm going past 54 engines, nozzle man. And he grabs me, and he goes, kid, we got no water. Because they had a spare pumper, and it wouldn't go into pump. So they got a substantial fire going in this building. It was on two floors in the rear, and it was really starting to move. So he's just telling me, be careful. So, you know, they were great, all great companies there. So I go up the stairs and I figure, well, I gotta go, because they're saying there's, there's people on the roof. So I go, I get to the, the floor and I'm thinking, oh God, I hope that door isn't locked up there because the fire's coming. I gotta get on yeah. the roof quick. Yeah, so yeah. luckily, boom, I slam the door open and there's a lieutenant from four trucks standing there. <laughs> he's looking at me, oh good, good, now there's two of us. And it's not one guy, but two guys, twin brothers, and they're just up, they were sleeping. Like, what's going on? They were sleeping in the building, and we've interrupted their day. Mm. They're not too happy. There's a language barrier. Um, I don't know that much Spanish, maybe get you to open the door because I'm a fireman, but beyond that, you know, right. a lot of hand motions. Um, and then we look down, and I think it was 24 truck is trying to go into the vacant lot next door, but we're looking, it's, it's not gonna happen. They're not gonna get the aerial up in time. Four trucks putting theirs up, but the only way to get to the front of the building is across this beam that's 
that's just left, so I guess it's about 10, 15 feet of this beam, and then there's a couple of floors missing, and then there's the top of whatever floor's there, and then you can see the street. So Jesus. It's a, it's a lot of fun. So walking those guys across there, um, the lieutenant went first. He had a rope in his hand, and he held on to the aerial ladder. And then, for whatever reason, we're using this rope because we thought it, it would calm the civilians because I jettisoned the rope after. It's just stupid. Why am I wasting time with these ropes? But we got the first brother, and uh, the uh, chauffeur from four truck comes. They're passing him. So I, I go back across the beam the second time. Now I got to get the second brother, and I'm taking him across the beam to go back to the ladder, and I'm just seeing the other guy going down. And my guy freezes on me. So I'm trying to get him to go. And now he's, I'm realizing he's afraid of heights. And I, I turned him around, and the bulkhead door we came through a couple of minutes ago, you know, early is now full of fire. There's only one way out of here. Yeah, it's that way. And we're going this way, pal. Yeah. So I'm I'm telling him things that he probably understood in English because yeah. they were they were bad words. Yeah. And I got him to go forward, and then he just grabbed the lieutenant. So now I got to climb over both of them, and then pull this guy up onto the ladder. So I think when that was done, I think that was probably the one that sticks in my head just for the fact that even though it was 86 or 87, it could have been done in my grandfather's day because there was no masks. You know, this is old, like uh, Flying Wallenders or yeah. Cirque du Soleil kind of stuff, you know, what they used to do in the old days. That's crazy. And I got down to the street, and my lieutenant told me, go, yeah, go sit over there, take a break. And now it's outside operation anyway. And I'm just sitting there looking at Looking the at this beam. And it's, it's yeah, it's all rushing into me now, you know, like, wow, this is... This was a, a good grab. That, that was pretty cool. And then all of a sudden, that next year, because I had two major rescues, it was like Metal Day was incredible. So that was that was very cool. Was that the first time you ever received a medal? No, the first helicopter, they were nice enough to give me a medal for that one, too. <laughs> that is medals, so medals are a funny thing. I'm writing a book now about medals and the history of the medals. And medals are wonderful. Medals are horrible. You know, I like them because of the history and the fact that you, you don't forget the people because there's a list with their names on it and there's a book with their stories in it. Right. That's not the only thing that happened at the fire. And that's one of the things why some people hate the medals because, ah, well, we put the fire out. And I had great guys. I used to teach with this guy, uh, Dory, from uh, Engine 280. And he used to say the muffled applause you hear at Metal Day is all the bandaged up engine men that put the fire out. <laughs> and he's 100% right, you know, because some of the, some of the bravest things people do Nothing happens. Going wreck The toughest search I ever did, I was in 25 truck, and it was a steam leak, but it was a loft bed. Oh, sorry. That's good. It was a loft bed in a, in a, 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 like a loft room. Right. And it was live steam. Oh, man. And it was hard, but they said there might be people there. And how I didn't get burned, I don't know. I think I got first degree, but I thought I was going to, but I was, you know, it was before hoods, but I yeah. was flaps down and collars up. And that's the, the most painful search that I remember doing and it was just hey nice job kid <laughs> well yeah I mean yeah but that's what everybody does I mean yeah. across the country every single day sure you know? sure yeah I mean I think the medals for me personally are good because it, it's at least showing your, your people that you're recognizing their, their hard work and recognizing what they've done and you know you personally you've, you've experienced that being able to stand there and, and get medals well getting them is great but seeing other people get I, I, I'd be lying if I 
you know, would say I wasn't happy to do it. To me, the greatest thing was to be on the steps of City Hall and have my parents there and my wife and children, you know, like, right. especially my mom, because she's not here anymore. But she got to share that. And I, I wish my grandfather had been alive. He didn't get to see me oh, be a man. firefighter. He would, he'd have been so proud. He would, yeah, he would have been tickled pink. Yeah. But then to, to do the research on all the writing that I do and to see the things that, that the brothers did, and not just in New York City, but across the country, you know, for all these years, it's, it's just it's absolutely incredible. It, you know, to be able to sit here and, and hear these stories firsthand is absolutely amazing for me. This is, a, this is honestly a spotlight of my firefighting career, to be honest with you, to be able to sit here with you and, and hear these stories. Oh, I hope you can do better than me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, um, honestly. And it must have been amazing to think that when you first started at the FDNY, did you ever think this is where it would have led you? No, you have no idea what's going to happen, but I... I I had my sights set on a rescue company since I think when I got that truck as a little kid. Not totally realizing what that meant, but you know, the name was familiar. Um, but but getting to do it, I think I I took it serious every day, and I worked hard every day. I have to be honest; there were days when we were the days that I didn't like to drill is when they took us out of service. I didn't like when they took the truck and they sent you somewhere to go do training because I wanted to be working. But I understand the need for it. Right. But those were not drills that I was happy at. I'd like drilling while you're available on the radio. That we'll do this and if something happens, you know, we'll have a very slight delay, but we'll get there. And because we drilled all the time. I mean, every single captain I had there, we drilled all the time. And guys would think we were breaking their chops, but we took it seriously. Like Mondays, was rope day. And I remember guys coming. We had that little sitting room where the cartoon wall is. Yeah. And yeah. Mondays was rope day. Every bag came off the truck and got checked. Visually inspected, you felt it with your hands, and you packed it in the opposite way so that the rope didn't get a memory. And there's a mile of rope, over a mile of rope. And there was two 600-foot bags of rope on there. A main line and the safety, in case you had to go 600 feet in a blind shaft, than all of the other mechanical event. And guys would come from other, after SOC got there, guys would be working for the tour and you're just doing that because I'm here. No, no, go have coffee, watch TV. We got it, don't worry about it. But that's what we did every single day because then if it was time to use something, I know that's good because I just checked. Right, you know it's good. Yep, even if we didn't use it, doesn't matter. I right. want it out, I want to make sure it's there. Because yeah, that's your lifeline. There was never a time that I took stuff off of Rescue One's rig that I doubted the equipment, never a time. Oh. I've gone to other companies where we had to get something off there. They, they're probably as into it as we are, but I don't know. Right. I don't know who checked that last and when it got checked and who checked it. Nothing against them. That's my comfort level. And yeah. that's how they should feel when they come to my truck, that they don't know. Yeah, he'll, he'll tell you, every tour, we check everything, everything. Yeah. I mean, not that I don't trust the the brothers before me, but right. I, I just need to know that. <laughs> well, we had you know. Alan Sal Salisbury from the Salisbury portion of putting the trucks, building the trucks, and I think they were doing a bid on one of our new rigs, and I'm on house watch, and this man comes. I wasn't sure who he was at the time. He says, I'm not paying attention. And he goes, and he's checking everything on measuring this and measuring that, and he comes back to me, and he says, well, you guys win. So why do we win? He says, you have the space. most stuff. He goes, I've been across this country. I've been to every rescue in New York City. You have the most stuff of anybody. 
I said, yeah, well, I wish we had more room because there's a couple other things we'd like to put on it. Right. But then you also, you've, you run into the problem It was one of the ongoing discussions at the kitchen table was the man in the machine kit. And they came up with this great idea of having a specific kit to run right into a building when you get a man in a machine. And it's a good idea. And they kept wanting to add to it until it turned into two things and then three things. And then my argument was, why do we have a man in a machine kit when you're bringing everything in? You're defeating the purpose of it. Right. You know, it's not a man in a machine kit. It's bringing every friggin' tool we have, but call it a man in a Right. So I think there's a point where you... You know, it's like decorating a Christmas tree. Yeah. When you can't tell it's a tree anymore, <laughs> you have over-decorated, you know. So yeah. It's just one of those things. So I was always on it. That's why the chauffeur at one of those things in, in Rescue One, I guess the other companies too, we hang back. You know, the good thing about being, we call them the swine in the rear, one of the good things about being the grunt in the back of the truck is that when something happened, you got to do it when the chauffeur stayed with the rig, like building collapses and stuff like that. At fires, I had the best job. I went where the line was. So it was a payoff. You know, I did a number of years in the back, and then I did a long time in the front. But a lot of times I was just, you know, carrying equipment or cutting wood while they were in there crawling around at the building collapse. But that's part of teamwork. You know? what, what was it like for you when you finally were able to get in the seat as a chauffeur for Rescue One? Was oh, that was, like a dream come true? It was cool. Yeah, it was really cool. I, I, I enjoyed, I think I enjoyed almost every single day and realized driving in there how cool this was, because I know the first time I drived into Manhattan after I retired, it hit me. As I'm, uh, you come down off the viaduct to go into the tunnel to go into Manhattan from Long Island, and um, I'm looking at the same skyline that I looked at all the time, and now I realized that if something happens, I'm gonna have to stand on the other side of the rope. You know, oh, that's nice, mister. No, go over there, the firemen are working, you know. But, no, I did my time. Was that and, difficult? Nah. Is it difficult? No, because it, it, it's a young man's job, and you know, I did my time. I think I did a good job when I was there. I think the, the best accolade you can get, a medal's nice, but when a person that you think highly of says, he's a good firefighter, that's, that's the best thing. You, when another good, another good guy says that you're a good guy. Someone you respect, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, I agree. We were working with somebody in uh, an ancillary business, with, with equipment, and he he couldn't pick up our code. Oh, well, what about this person? What about, yeah, he's a nice guy. That's the kiss of death. Mm -hmm. He's a nice guy. Yeah. That's the best thing you have to say about him. <laughs> the best thing in the world to say, he's a good fireman, or right. he's a good firefighter. That's it. Or he's a nice guy. Okay, that means you're not going to say anything. Yeah, it's an unwritten rule. Yeah, yeah. and it, that, that man couldn't pick up on it until we explained it to him four or five times, because it never really stuck. But there are. It's it's like anything else, you know. There's lots of lots and lots of firefighters, varying degrees of expertise, commitment, right. whatever. By and large, they're all. Most are very very good. There's a couple of knuckleheads, and there's a couple hanger-ons. But that's with anything, you know. It's it's like any any job anywhere. There's going to be a couple of people that are just getting carried along by the tide. And okay, you know I. Um I know 9-11 was very difficult for every brother in New York City and, it, you know, it synonymously throughout the world. It was, you know, but for you, what were you doing that day, that, that morning? <clears throat> well, I was on vacation. 
And when the vacation thing came down, uh, my wife jo Joanne was uh, a teacher still. She's since retired, but she was an elementary school teacher in Roslyn. And September vacation, when you're married to a teacher, that's like the worst vacation you can possibly get. Like, uh, who the hell wants? She's back to work, so what right. am I going to do? Well, I, I had been working on a book at the time, so Terry was saying, well, I could change it if you want. And I said, nah, I'll take it. Whatever. doesn't matter. And that was my plan. So the night before, I was up a little bit late. Joanne came home, did her homework, marked her tests, whatever, watched a little television. She went to sleep, and I'm pounded away on the computer, putting out a fire in 1897 or whatever it was. <laughs> and I get to bed a little bit late. And uh, I'm sound asleep. And all of a sudden, my bedroom door bursts open, and my daughter Elizabeth comes in. She's a, at the time, she was a reporter on a, the local cable channel. And she's now an anchor. And 11 Emmys later, you know, she's wow. doing very well for That's herself. awesome. But she slams the door open and yells at me to wake up, put the TV on. So I click the TV on, and the first tower's got smoke pouring out of the side of it, and I'm getting dressed automatically. She hasn't said another word. I know I'm going. Then the phone rings. It's Bruce. The recall, right? We're going. It wasn't even a recall yet. Oh, wow. And we're going automatic. We've gone before. I never went on an official recall before. We've gone into other major building collapses and went to work. And uh, now, Not to interrupt, because I'll forget, because I'm yeah. getting old. Were you at the original uh, World Trade Center fire? In, was that ninety? Uh, on my day off, went in. Yeah. We, so it, so it's like we worked on the periphery of that because <clears throat> to go to that story, Kevin Shea, who had just uh, a year or two before done that rope wrestling, right? Yeah. Um, he gets banged up pretty bad there, and the guys from Squad One go down, and other guys come and they, they save him. They do a really good job, and because they were so taken out of the game by having a guy down there and the company was shot trying to get to him and trying to do what they could they were just exhausted and guys were banged up from their own injuries and stuff plus it's cold outside and there was two guys on the rig that were just shot once Kevin was out there was other rescue companies there and everything was, go take a break right. they still weren't even sure was what caused the explosion at that point so I came in to help and now my first thing to do is, well, i got to take care of these guys. They're soaking wet. You know, it looks like they were shot out of a cannon directly into a wall. Their eyes are blood red, and it's just, you got to get them out of here. You yeah. know, they're going to get pneumonia or something. So I, I go over to, uh, they got the command post set up right next to the rig. And I said to the chief, and it was one of the good things about being a rescue, you got to know all the chiefs. So yeah. if you came in, I, I wouldn't say anything and just stand there. And he would know that I wanted to talk to him, otherwise I wouldn't be standing there. And he goes, you know, Chief leans over and he goes, what is it? He said, I got two guys in the, the rig that are pretty tough shape. I'm going to bring them back to the firehouse, get some clothes, see if they need to go to the hospital, whatever. And he goes, guys from where? And I said, rescue one. Oh. So I run, I get the riding list. And I said, this guy and this guy. Okay. I thought they were in the building. I said, no, nah, that's other off-duty guys came in because we had extra radios on. So other guys came. Accountability assumed, nightmare. Well, Yeah. But guys assumed the, the position of Rescue One now. It's before the computerized stuff. And they went to work. Now, they knew that Rescue One, those, there's five guys that are Rescue One, and they're on this floor doing that. So they knew they were there. 
but they thought they were still the day tour guys, that they weren't these guys coming from home. Right. So then I take my friends back and we get them squared away and then we come back and everything's out and everything's calmed down. So eventually we go home. So that was my first experience. Now we'd been to the building a number of times, uh, on many number of times before, little emergencies, minor fires. Um, so we were familiar with the building. So we come over in a parking lot across the street from the firehouse here. I had just finished being chief of the Freeport department the year before. So my first deputy is now the chief of the department. So I call him up and I say, can I borrow one of the spare chief cars? Because I'm getting phone calls from other guys that are off duty or on vacation like me. We want to go in. It's 9-11. Right. Okay. Yeah. So um, I'm telling everybody, come to the Freeport Firehouse and we'll get a chief's car. So we're waiting, we're waiting, we're watching, we're down, looking at the big screen TV down there waiting for this car to come and guys are filtering in. And all of a sudden you see it on a big screen TV, the second plane hit. Like oh, Now all of a sudden you knew what's going on. Yeah. And now it's twice as bad. And but still no car. And finally the chief calls me up. The battery's dead. They're jumping it. It'll be there. It'll be there. Okay, so what are you going to do? Yeah. Because I know it's going to get us in there faster than any other Oh, one. yeah, taking a personal vehicle. Yeah, we're going to get stuck there. So um, finally the thing comes. I guess maybe it delayed us 10 minutes, 15. We get a bunch of guys. We pick up another guy. So there's like five of us going in. And uh, Bruce is sitting next to me. And I think he was freshly retired from a, a bad injury, line of duty injury that he, he got uh, rescuing a lieutenant at a fire. So he's, he's banged up. They couldn't put him back together. They tried. Mm -hmm. And so they sent him home. He wasn't happy. But now here he is. Let's go. We're going. <laughs> and uh, he just kept looking at me going, slow down, slow down. I guess I was going fast. <laughs> but there was nobody on the roads. Everybody, the world stopped. And we went flying through the Midtown Tunnel. The gates were up. They see a red truck with a, a, a fire chief car straight through. Taking corners on two wheels. We go to rescue one. And uh, we start throwing extra equipment. Got my bunker gear. Um, whatever we could grab. And threw it in the back of the rig. And a guy standing, one of the neighbors, and he's going, uh, I'm a doctor. Maybe they need me. Get in the car. So I throw him in the back. Never met the man before in my life. So off we go. I'd seen him walk his dog. So I knew he, he lived there. But So we go down, we park over, we're about two blocks away, three blocks away. And uh, on the way in, the first tower had already fallen. So that was weird. All of a sudden, when you're looking, there's only one building. Like that was really scary. And, and then knowing, having gone to building collapses before, and when the radio went silent, that you know. Yeah what that just cost. And so when, when we get in there, we, we, go, we park the other building still up and it was the one with the antenna. And <clears throat> we're going down the block and I got this doctor with me. And I said, you stick with me, we'll bring you by an ambulance or something, it's gonna be people, you know, gonna, cause he was an optometrist, ophthalmologist, optometrist gives you glasses, yeah, yeah. right? So um, he's saying, no, I'm an eye doctor. So we'll, We'll put you to work. Don't worry about it. So I'm looking, I'm counting floors because I'm trying to figure, that was the first building that was hit. The other one came down. My guys are going to be in this building and they're going to be, and I'm trying to figure out the bottom of that big hole in the side of the building. I know they're going to be right there because they're going to go up as high as they can. They're going to, I know 
at least one or two of my guys is on a hose somewhere trying to put this fire out. Guaranteed. We could never prove it, but I know it. And all of a sudden, I see the antenna move. And I instinctively knew that the building was coming down. And one of the guys that was with us, Frankie Fee, who's a member here also, you know, a member of Rescue One, I yelled, run. And Frankie said, and he's known me for 20-something years, working together on Rescue One, working here. So I never heard you yell before, but I understood what you meant. And we just stopped on a dime and turned around and just ran, because we were running towards the building. And then all of a sudden, that antenna disappeared. And I knew that building was coming down just like this one. Jesus. And I take the doctor. I, I guess we run 50 feet, 100 feet or whatever. And you could hear it. It sounded like a train coming. It's just a noise I'll, I'll never forget. Just And getting louder and louder. And I just shove him under a car and climb on top of him. I remember saying to him, put your nose in your shirt and breathe slow. First there's going to be dust. And then there's going to be all sorts of other stuff. And hopefully that's all. And the ground was shaking. You know, the things are slamming, and I was scared. It was, it was crazy. And then <laughs> I remember the doctor going, I'm asthmatic, I can't breathe. I said, I'm not asthmatic, and I can't breathe either, so <laughs> don't worry about it. So finally, the ground stopped shaking, and you pull out, and if you've seen the pictures, there's just yeah. things hanging, floating in the air, and we wait Papers. a little bit. And I'm trying to yell for the other guys, but... You could just tell that your voice was not traveling. I'm yelling, and it's going that far because there's just so much suspended in the air. So I have, I'm wearing my T-shirt around my nose, and for whatever reason, I got the doctor with me in the first ambulance I see. I push him, yeah, go work with them. And I start going. And I guess from being the show for so long and going to the line, I ended up going all the way in to like the main part of the collapse, and there was nothing to do there. All the action, all the people that they could get at were on the periphery. But I instinctively went there, and the other guys that I was with were, were doing these all these amazing rescues, and I get in with three or four other guys, and sadly, we're playing whack-a-mole. You hear a tassel, I'm here, you go into a void, you can't do anything. You go into a void, you can't do anything. We're trying to stretch a hose to try to put out, you couldn't do anything. Jesus. But on the on the edges, where there's still people that are pinned that you can lift up some of the steel and the other, Bruce and, uh, and Jack and Frank uh, were saving people and, and doing amazing stuff. And then later I, I joined up with them, but most of the, the edges were done. But if not for a, a September vacation, that was my day. That was my day to work, and I would have been driving. And this would be an empty seat. You'd be talking to somebody else. It's ama- that's that, that's what I said earlier about it's amazing how the universe works, you yeah. know. And and uh, I mean, I, I hate to even ask this question. I apologize if it offends you, but how do you recover from that? How do you go back to work and have all those empty lockers and these 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 family members. Yeah, you... that, that was really hard. I, the whole thing, so many things happened at once that you kind of got a little numb. Um, that, that was the worst place in the world to be, you know, after it was down. But you didn't want to be anywhere else because you knew you had to be there. So <clears throat> going, I, I never, the only time I remember specifically 
not going there in the very, very beginning. We, we stayed there the whole entire day into the night. Remember working with a whole bunch of people trying to get lift steel, cut steel to get to Ray Downey's car. And then when, when the list started coming of all the people we lost, it was bad enough to know that all my guys were there. But I played hockey with Ray Downey and um, I would say I was close friends with him, but we knew, knew each other for a long time. I only got to work with him once or twice, but his reputation was you know, amazing. He was like the rescue captain for the whole country. You know, he was, he was running FEMA to a large degree, setting it up and all that, because that all happened in 89 into 90 when all that started forming. And he was one of the people that was helping the feds make the whole task force system and all that kind of stuff. And when we set up the rescue school, um, Terry and uh, Phil Ruvlo were brand new captains and they started the technical rescue school under Downey and with the division of training and they put this whole thing together because the old uh, I'll teach you how to do it stuff was coming to an end. Now now you had to have certificates and state authorization and all, which is great, you know. So we just took the next step. It was like the diving thing. I got there when the diving thing started. Right. I was there when the technical rescue thing started and got to be part of that. So, but when they started telling us all the people that we lost, I was like, oh man, you know, it's, that's not fair. I think Downey was one of the ones that hit me the most because he was the guy that was just like the anchor. And then, thank God, John Norman was still there. But now, you know, think that I would feel bad. They just told John Norman, you're Ray Downey. I'm like, holy mackerel, you've got to be kidding me. You know, John's one of the smartest people I ever met, one of the, the greatest firefighters I ever met. But the psychological load they just put on you, you're, you're running the whole thing now. It's like, oh, man, you know, that's... Yeah. You know, yeah, there was people above him, but he's in charge of doing it. And, and he did a great job. And, and everybody down there, every level, all the different, all the different things from <clears throat> when it was a, a pile to all the different variations that happened down there. Uh, I think that one of the things that kept you going was the work that was being done, the people that were doing it, and then the outpouring of the citizens. I remember driving back and forth with the truck when, after we were there a couple of days, they started sending us back to the firehouse and all the rest of it. And the civilians were just applaud. You know, it was like, wow, this, they, I think they called themselves the nuts on the highway or something, but they were there all the time on 12th Avenue, crowds in the village. They cheered when you went in, cheered when you went out. You know, it, was, it was pretty heavy. But Was it emotional for you? Yeah, it was. It, yeah. You know, even remembering, uh, you know, and little things like that, you know. I lost my friends, but somehow I could deal with that because I knew that their, their loss could have been me. And, you know, it's just that unwritten thing, you know. You know, it's nobody wants to go to work to die. But, and the thing that I always tell people is getting killed on 9-11 didn't make them heroes. It was what they did the day before that nobody was paying attention to. Absolutely. It's the way and, they live their lives. Yeah, and it was, yeah. Yeah, it was all the training they did and all the things that, all the, all the things they did before that, that nobody saw, that there was no medals, there was no, you just went, you did your job like you're supposed to. You know, because, oh, the mayor was so good. Yeah, he was good. He's supposed to be good. Right. You know, you're not supposed to get an accolade for doing your job, you know. And then, right. So there was a lot of good things and a lot, a lot of good things happened. And 
the only time that I, I ducked out of there is I knew the president was coming. The war, and nothing against the president, that's great he came down there. But I hadn't been home in two days or whatever. And they said, he's coming. I said, well, I know they're going to stop working because they're not going to be, they're not going to let us be on top of that pile. Right. Well, the president's down there. No, of course. Everybody's going to want to come and see him. And, that's, mm -hmm. and they, they had a great moment with him and the, the country needed it, the department needed it. And I took that time to go home and let my family, you know, know that I was all right. How was it for you <clears throat> being being there at, at the pond and coming home for the very first time and seeing your wife? Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. No words. Yeah. No words. It, yeah, it was, it was just, you cherish being there. Yeah. You know? And then I saw my daughter um, a couple days later. Um, because I, I think, if I remember it straight, uh, I saw my wife that night. I don't know if I saw my daughter maybe the day I was leaving to come back. Maybe that, yeah, maybe that was, because she was a reporter then, and she got assigned to be there. So I see that all the towers are up and all the news trucks are there. So I, I look like a snowman. I'm covered with crap, and uh, all of us are walking back. We're going to shower off, and a couple of us were going home. The same idea that I had, let's get out of here. It's going to be media, and there's the media. So I go walking over, and she sees me, you know, big hug and a kiss and everything. <clears throat> so we talked a, a couple of minutes, and then I went back to the car, and one of the other reporters says to him, oh, it was really nice you went and uh, thanked that fireman. <laughs> That's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it affected all our families and, and all of the brothers we lost, their families, and all the families of, of the civilians that were there. And then even all the firefighters from around the country. Right. One of the things that struck me the most about the whole thing was, sadly, New York City Fire Department loses a lot of firefighters historically. Uh, big giant buildings, big horrible fires, and we fight aggressively and people get killed. And nothing to be proud of, but that's just what happens. And we have a certain level of funeral that we try to give our brothers. It's the least you can do. It's the only thing you can do. 100%. And we couldn't do it. There was just too much to do. There was just too many people, too much to do, too many places to try to be at the same time. And those, the guys from around the country came and did it for us. That's special. Hmm. And, and you know what? If, if that doesn't strike to what we are and what this brotherhood means, I don't know what is. Yeah. You know, if you can pick up and, and show up at someone's funeral, you don't even know who he is or who she is, but they're family. That's an important bond. Yep, yep. You know. Yeah, it was, that was moving for me. Looking back at your, at your time, FDF, FDNY, um, I mean, the, the people you were able to work with that were lost on, on one day, one, one event, one day, um, do you cherish those times? Are there times that you reflect back on certain things they told you that stick with you to this day? Oh, yeah. Each guy was different. Each guy was funny. Um, in their own way. Um, they were all wonderful guys. Um, they, they were human. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> every single day isn't perfect. So there were days when you weren't happy to see this one or mm -hmm. that one, and they probably weren't happy that's to life. see me. Yeah, sure. yeah, and that's how it's supposed to be. Um, they, they were great guys. It was an honor to work with them. Sadly, I, I worked with a, 
a number of different fellows that were killed in the line of duty. Uh, and like we said, all the way at the beginning, it, it started here early in my career, and sadly, that, that was part of it. And uh, one of my better friends was a, a captain in the city. I had a little T-shirt business with him, and uh, he got killed in the line of duty. And it was I was still in ladder 25 then, and it was, you know, it's heartbreaking. There's, there's no easy way to go to a, a friend's funeral. No. Uh, especially when they're dying before they're supposed to. Absolutely. Uh, yep. You know, and that, that's across the country, whether you're, you know, in a police car or a fire truck or an ambulance or, or you're in the military. You know, I, we used to teach cert classes, and at first I thought it was stupid. Why are we teaching civilians? But I embraced it, you know, even just to give them ammunition to take care of themselves in a hurricane or whatever. And I used to tell them that there's two kinds of people in the world. Something bad happens across the street, cops, firefighters, doctors, the military, lifeguards, they all run across the street. And everybody else stands over here wringing their hands that something bad happened across the street. Right. Welcome to this side of the street because now you've decided that you want to do that. And when you get a civilian that wants to do that, you're not just a civilian anymore. Right. It's now pretty powerful. Yeah, you're somebody special. And, yeah. and being a firefighter to me is another thing I like to tell young guys. Lifeguards risk their lives in big waves but they can't calm the sea. Cops go get bad guys and put them in jail, but maybe they get out on bail or maybe they do their time and they're back out on the street. Right. We stop elemental nature. You put a fire out. Every single fire I went to, as far as I know, is out. <laughs> <laughs> so we have that luxury of not only stopping and, and battling elemental nature, but when we're done with our job, we're done. Right. You know, it's like the poor cops, you know, they got to go to trial and all. It's just like biting your tail, you know, it goes round and around and around. Right, the vicious circle. Yeah, we get to go, it's over. So, so Paul, after 9-11 and you lose these firefighters, but the experience that was lost yeah. in that one day, Man. how does Rescue One recover from that? Like, so there has to be guys to replace those those fine, mm -hmm. fine guys, our brothers yeah. that we lost, we had to replace those guys with people who probably weren't, would you say, ready or ready for the task of rescue one? Well, nobody's ready. And, and not to give it a, a bad analogy, but look at the Yankees right now. Half the team is hurt. Hurt, right, right. Right, their starting lineup is out. And they got all these kids in there that are hitting home runs and running around the bases and making diving catches and everything. I think like, what a good opportunity that right. is well, to that, show what you got. It, it certainly is, and it's not yeah. that... Baseball equates anyway to firefighting, or 9-11 certainly, but you rise to the occasion. And when the new guys came, because there was this whole thing, they didn't know what to do in the beginning. Um, they wanted to keep us in case something bad happened. But then you're just sitting in the building looking at the walls. They wouldn't let us go be a rescue company anymore. Plus, we weren't really that well-staffed. They had to change all the different... If you look in the book, it's all the different ways. They, they finally figured out how to get us back to work. And thank God, because guys were going crazy. Didn't take too long, a week and a half or whatever. And then finally, we were going to fires again and making a difference. They had big scaffolding collapse. They saved two men's lives. They, you know, now we're being rescue one again. So, like, hooray. We're down at the pile. We're working for hours. Then we're going out in the streets and doing our job. We get the rescue school up and running. And... You know, we're juggling. We got a lot of things going on, trying to be home, trying to go to funerals. I mean, it was the craziest time. I look at the calendar that I had then, and every day, 
I was either teaching in the rescue school, working on the pile, working in the firehouse, or going to a funeral. And it went on for months. But you wanted to be at each of those things because they were all important. And these guys in the rescue school, I remember the first two guys that walked into Rescue One, I took them aside because I realized I'm one of the senior guys now. Right. And I thanked them for coming. And I said, don't think you're filling anybody's shoes. We have a quartermaster. They'll give you shoes. We want you to wear your own shoes. Don't try to be Terry or try to be Billy or try to be anybody. Just be you. Thank you for coming. We'll teach you what you have to do and just follow our lead. That's awesome. You know, that, and it, it had to be pretty scary for those guys. Um, absolutely. To step into this, to tell their family, uh, I'm going to leave my firehouse and go to this place where 11 guys just got killed. Because all the families in the fire department were shocked and the police department. Like, you know, all these men get killed at one time. And it was scary before, but now it's like, it's crazy. And, you know, just like my wife went, oh, you're going to a rescue company. That's what these guys are doing. And they were all great. Some came for a short period of time and went somewhere else. They couldn't do it or felt that they would be better used going back where they were. You know, it's a very complicated thing. But most of them stayed, and most of them did very well. And that's one of the reasons I was toying with the idea of retiring in December of 2001 until September happened. I hadn't done anything about it, but I was in the back of my head, oh, maybe that's a good time to go and whatever. Because I was starting to feel that I'm not, re I'm not rebounding the way I did earlier. I could still do everything I had to do. Right. And maybe I could do it twice. I'm starting to see that now. <laughs> yeah, but, but the third job, the right. fourth job, thank God we don't have too many of those nights, but I've been to them where you went to two or three or four really bad jobs, right. one after the other, and you just you can't do it. It's a young man's job. I, I, just, I was not recovering the way I was doing. And also, then doing all the, the extra work and the right. extra hours and the, the anguish of it all. Um, Plus but, you're writing books. Yeah, but mo yeah, most of that really happened afterwards. Um, I was writing stories before, um, but um, I think I had written one book in 96, and then I had an idea for another book, but really the writing took off after 9-11, because of, especially at, right at the 9-11 time, I was just way too busy. To, you know, there was just too much to do. But then I found, you know, I always enjoyed writing even back in high school. I had teachers that you're going to be a cop, you're going to be a fireman, what the hell's wrong with you? you know? <laughs> no, be in this play, you can act, and oh, you're a good writer, and you know. The mural you did, uh, the cartoon. Dude. Dumb luck, dumb luck. Tell me about that. I had, done, I, I had done a sketch. Working in Midtown Manhattan quite often, it is, just like I said, walking down the street in a, a wet <laughs> wetsuit. Right. And getting like, oh, okay. Like, it's Manhattan. Yeah, it's Manhattan. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a screwy thing. I mean, right. I don't like the dirty Elmo's and all that now. I'd rather see the hookers <laughs> that used to be there because I think they were less ab abhorrent than these <laughs> things. Um, but, you know, there, there, there's a certain something to go into a fire in midtown Manhattan where the whole rest of the world just keeps going by. Right. And you're over here, people dangling on ropes and pushing lines and doing whatever. And, you know, bah, bah, could you move that truck, you know? <laughs> You know, th that kind of thing. So I did this. It started out as a sketch, and then I decided to do it as a poster. And I, I did a photocopy of it, 
and I hung it on the uh, refrigerator in the firehouse and went on a 72-hour swing. So I'm off for three days now. I just did my... Right, so everybody in the house has seen yeah. it. So yeah. it's, I come back, and there's names written next to people, you know, different characters. Right. And I hadn't drawn, except for one guy. I put a little guy with a cigarette in his mouth like Joe Angelini. <laughs> so, but the, nobody else was really meant to be anybody. Okay. Um, and then, you know, guys were saying, oh, I love that. Could you do it on a wall? So I'm laughing. Like, what wall? You know? Yeah. No, there's, there's no wall. So a couple of guys kept saying, yeah, yeah, do it. So where that sitting room is, it was a cinder block wall. It used to be the coat room. We moved the coats downstairs. They stuck a TV in there. Okay. So I think I went on a half a vacation, and I came back, and we have some very talented guys there, and they had put up sheetrock and glazed it perfectly. I mean... <laughs> Mike, Michelangelo would have loved this. Like, why? It was so now you perfect. have a canvas. So I'm look, looking at it. I said, oh, man, now I have to do it. Right. So I started doing it. I made a deal. They were a little suspect of my cooking to begin with. So <laughs> um, my thing was, I'm the chauffeur. I'll take care of the rig. Right. And I'll work on the wall. And they said, yeah, we got the rest. Don't worry about it. So I started doing it. it took, I, I kept a, a rough count as I was doing it. I think it took 100 hours. Holy cow. To do. You know, I'd stay up right through my watch or whatever. Go to bed, everybody. I'm, I'm painting. And, but now it had changed. I, I restyled it. And that every firefighter now, instead of being generic firefighters, there were everybody that was in the company. And I, I changed the, the different situations. To, and right. I wrote everything down, but it was a couple. I, like there'd be two jokes in one thing and right. I don't remember what the second joke was I remember who the guy was but I don't remember why I put that second thing in there like I had like the one where uh, count the moors you have the lock yeah they just come out of the lock, lock. Yeah. yeah it's so cool yeah uh, we had a guy Glenn that lived in East Quag as if Quag isn't far enough he lives in East Quag so I have <laughs> a picture of him uh, the cartoon of him and he's holding a globe <laughs> <laughs> which is like a road map if you're traveling that far, and the Montauk Lighthouse is behind him. So, like, there's, there's all these little yeah. things with Tommy Baker's up on the top, and he had accidentally, uh, there was water on a roof, and he was going to open this roof, and he cut a hose that he didn't see under there. <laughs> and as he cut it with the saw, he was boosting the water right up into his butt. So I, I did that in, so he couldn't forget that. And then, uh, you know, all these little yeah. funny little different things that happened. It's so cool that they have that, though. It's, you know, there forever. It's awesome. Yeah, it's neat. And they got pictures of it. I think eventually that they're going to get a different firehouse. And I don't think you'll be able to take that down. And it's not like the Louvre where we got, we have to save this thing. You know, it's, it'd be cool if they could make wallpaper out of it or something. I'm sure nowadays you probably could. You'd yeah. probably do anything now. Yeah, kind of, but yeah, it was flattering. And I, I just, I feel a little bad for the guys that are there now because they're not on it. You know, it's a period piece. You know, those people are gone. You know, they've moved on and uh, retired or got killed or whatever. But, you know, I, I think there maybe is only two or three people that are still on that wall that work there. And, you know, a lot of times guys, the new guys are going, I don't know, that's, that's guys holding a dolphin. I don't know what it's about. <laughs> well, it's funny because um, I watched, I, I, my daughters and I were watching the YouTube video of your last day at work which was great, by the way. And uh, you were talking about you and your duck. And yeah. they want to know, I got it, they want they me to ask you, 
What's with the duck? What does it mean? Well, I was like talking like a duck. I used to. I, I'm not going to do it now. I, I, I can't do a credit to what I, I used to do. Uh, I was world-class duck, but <laughs> not anymore. Um, but it was a funny in-house thing, too, because when I was first there, Captain O'Flaherty was the captain, and if he'd say, oh, we're going to do something, and I could turn around as the duck and complain. Like, <laughs> oh, we're not doing that, but in a duck voice. So he didn't know what to do because... So guys thought it was cool that I could be, you know, breaking on the captain a little bit. But it wasn't me. It was this duck. Right. So, and they, they started calling me duck. So that's, that's it, how it, just, it just stuck. That's yeah. awesome. So it was me and my duck taking notes. You know, right, just right. what's happening around us. Do you ever watch that? Do you ever watch that? Uh... I've seen the video once. I tried to show my grandkids recently. and I love it. Yeah, but they want, they're playing games where they're blowing things up all day yeah, yeah, and they're I looking know. at this and a fire truck goes by like, yeah, yeah no nah, that's oh that's you that's not it doesn't look like me to them right you know that looks like my son to them right know? right <laughs> where's your white hair like, what's, <laughs> who, who is that you know they don't know they, that's nice papa yeah thanks a lot when when you were back in the the rescuing for the last time and you said this is going to be a rough rough ride uh, what, what was i mean was it hard to walk out that door oh it wasn't it wasn't i i knew it was time so that was good, but actually doing it, that, that was the tough thing. Right. And God bless them. They were a great film crew, but they wanted to follow me right up into the shower. And I said, no. Yeah, yeah. When I tapped, the, I tapped my helmet, and like, that's a, that's a good run. Right, you know? right, right. That's, that's turn it off, you know. I, we had a party down the corner, um, and I didn't want a big, big party. Uh, when, when I was chief in Freeport here, and Terry, um, on occasion... Because Terry was, uh, he wasn't a teetotaler, but he wasn't much of a drinker. Um, and he occasionally, we had this little thing where I, I would walk in and I'd, I'd, at the start of a tour, even before, as soon as I came in, I'd walk into the office before I got changed and I would just bellow, captain my captain. And he would go <laughs> chauffeur my chauffeur. And I'd look in the day book and see if we had anything planned or what's going on. And um, occasionally when we were getting off, he would ask me, oh, we're going up to the corner. You want to have a beer? Now, I have the Freeport Chief car outside. Right. And the responsibility that came with that is there's meetings all the time. Yep. And, all, and and I'm trying to – it didn't seem like it to them, but I'm trying to also include my family in my life. And I kept putting them off. I'll get, next time, next time. And then after I got out as chief, I, I think I turned Terry down one more time. And then 9-11 happened. And that was one of the things I regret about the whole time in the company. So I didn't go down to the corner with him. You know, it was, he'd just take a couple guys down there and, because nobody drank in the firehouse. Right. So, but we'll, I'll drink a beer with you down here. And I'll talk the same stuff that I was talking at the kitchen table, but it's not coffee anymore. So they go up and save the world, right. firefighting wise up there. <laughs> and I said, when I retired, what I'm going to do is go up the corner and have a beer with Terry. So that's why we ended up and I invited the film crew That's to awesome, come. I said, leave the cameras off. Come on. It's on us. Yeah. Let's go. And it was good. It was, it was pretty neat. Yeah, it gets you right here, man. That's, uh... Yeah, the only thing I did wrong with that is I should have had my wife come to it. Because things were different. I never saw a wife go to a retirement thing before in the city. My daughter mutinied. She came anyway. <laughs> and, uh, which is cool. Yeah. But I, I should have told my wife to come because yeah. when it was all happening, I didn't realize... Um, the effect that 9-11 and all those things had on the family. 
and how strong my wife was and Bruce's wife, Karen, and all the other wives and all the things they were doing, everything that we were doing, they were doing on the outside, but they were handcuffed. Right. Um, I remember uh, my wife kept asking me, I, I want to go down there. She wanted to go to the World Trade Center. And I'm going, no, you, you don't want to go there. And I didn't understand why she wanted to go there. I just knew what it was like for me, and I didn't want her to have part of that. But what had happened, and I didn't put two and two together until I finally did, being a little slow in math, um, they had built a platform, and there were dignitaries coming there, and people to watch us dig. And, you know, all of a sudden it was being on the news that, oh, the president of France was watching them dig, or, you know, the mayor of Toledo, or whoever it was, some more regular people. And she's going, but I want to see it. They were my friends, too. It's like, hmm. I blew that one. Yeah. So I brought it down, and it, it really, I think it changed, uh, you know, it, it closed the circle for her, you know. that Some closure? Yeah. It, it, people hate the word. People like, what a, yeah, it, it did something. It, it, it gave her a piece of that thing. And like I said, it was the worst place in the world to be. But if I could choose one more place to be before I died, it'd be there doing that work. You know, just because it had to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Brother, I can't even begin to tell you what this meant to me. Uh, I appreciate so much of your time. And uh, before I let you off the hot seat, you, you you have to talk about these books, man. This is just, it's amazing. Talk about talk about your work. Well, the whole thing started. Um, I'm a young guy in Rescue One, and there was a a book, um, Building Construction for the Fire Service by Francis Brannigan, the first edition of it. And I was given a bunch of reading material, and that that stayed at the house watch. And that was one of the things I was told to read. Because now you're going to building collapses. So read all about this and learn the terms and everything. I was, I've always been a voracious reader, and I was just going through everything they, they were recommending. And I'm flipping through this and flipping through this. Um, and there was a footnote that said, um, talking about a certain type of building fire, blah, blah. And here was a footnote about the equitable building fire in 1912 and that a full-blooded American Indian member of the fire department made a rescue there, and blah, blah, blah. Wow. Now, at that time, I thought that I had Indian heritage because, as I found out later, my other grandfather that wasn't the firefighter, he had been um, in the Navy. He was a CB and uh, got banged up in World War II. And he used to tell us that we were Indians. Turns out that he was raised by a woman that was an Indian, okay. and I think he believed he was. Right. But um, turns out that he wasn't because we did that swab thing, and we weren't. It broke my heart. But what are you going to do? But anyway, we, we used to sit there with this other grandfather when I wasn't driving the one crazy to take him to the firehouse. <laughs> I was with this guy, and we used to watch John Wayne movies and root for the Indians. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, it, all. Give me the question again. <laughs> How did it come to be that you start writing these oh, books? so the footnote, yeah. the Indian thing, yeah. So uh, I start doing research, the Indian thing. And 
by luck, one of the guys that was also a member here and was a city firefighter, Vinny Segreto, who's retired and in Florida now, he was banged up. He worked down in 10 truck. Then they closed 10 truck, he went to one truck. And he worked with Joe Angelini as firefighters. And Vinny got banged up on the job. So he was working in the union store, which is the precursor to the quartermaster. So if you needed uniform stuff, or whatever, okay. you went to see Vinny. Right. They get a letter. He's the guy you want to know. Yeah, yeah. Especially <laughs> in those days. Yeah, yeah. So they get a letter from a woman who wants a patch. Turns out her father was a firefighter back in the day, and she's got his scrapbook, and she wants a patch. Well, it's Seneca Lark's daughter. Yeah. So Vinny reads this. He heard me talk about it, photocopies the thing, gives it to me. I write her a letter. Scrapbook. That's awesome. Get the whole scrapbook from her. And this is in a day before, you know, uh, yeah. photocopiers were in people's homes. You right. know, you had to go to the library or something. It cost money. And um, she sends me all this stuff, and I write my first article that shows up in WNYF about the equitable fire. And it all started off a footnote in the book. So that got me doing research. Hmm. And once you start doing it, yeah. Herbie Iza, who was a dispatcher in the city of probably knows as much about the history of the New York City Fire Department as anybody on the planet. He would help me. He would get me all different stuff. Give yeah, me I noticed you, you, you thanked him in your book. Yeah. yeah. Oh, deservedly so. I, I just yeah. talked to him a short while ago and told me a couple of incredible things I didn't know. And so it just whet my appetite for that era. And then to think that I'm, I'm uh, writing about people that my grandfather worked with. So cool. You know, that, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. So cool. And there's so many good stories. So I... I even did two novels, but I like to go tell the stories. And uh, when I was first started, my wife used to laugh that all my girlfriends were old women <laughs> because I was, you know, they were the, the daughters of all right. these old firefighters that right. were long gone. And I was telling their stories. And I just, I have so much information now. And now with the internet, I can get so much more that, you know, it's what I love doing anyway. You know, if, if you're a writer and you enjoy doing the research, then it's not work. You're just, right. you're just doing it. It's passion, I, yeah. I can spend an hour going through a book looking for one name to find out what company this guy was in in 1916 for some obscure reason, just that I want to know. It's awesome, though. Yeah. Yeah, because well, now other people get to figure it out. They know who well, these people are because of your research. It's cool because you can yeah. put it together. The Rescue One book, pretty much everything is there because, you know, a lot of it was there. And, you know, sadly, a lot of these books... It's all about the medals, but that's what they wrote the story about. They didn't write a story. They didn't fill out an in-depth report about a fire you put out. Right. They just didn't do it. So I don't know who was on the nozzle at this big fire or whatever. Right. Nobody knows. Even And I've asked the guys that were at the big fire. They don't even remember. It was 100 years. You know, <laughs> old guys. Yeah. I asked all guys that – I asked an old guy that was in Rescue 3 about um, – he got a Bennett medal. What, what were you doing right, right before that? I have no idea. I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I remember the medal. <laughs> but, you know, you, you can't remember everything. Yeah, so. it's just too much. Yeah. But the fun of it is, I mean, we have a, a great library, great people over there. There's a lot of guys. Um, there's honorary chiefs. And, you know, that association is a lot of historians in that. They do a lot of, to me, it's like mining for gold or precious objects, you know, and they, yeah. they find these things, they have amazing collections of badges and medals and all this stuff, and they don't want to give you the medal, but you can take a picture of it, you yeah, know. Yeah. But it's really cool, there's a lot of good people that are into it. So. And you have a, is that a children's book there? Yeah, I did a, I did this book with my grandkids, it was just an idea I had uh, to get, you know, to publish something 
that they would have a piece of, so they, they could be published authors, and they were, they were writing that last year in grammar school, you know, going around. That's so cool. I gave them each uh, extra copies, and they put them in their school libraries, and they were celebrities for a brief time, but, <laughs> yeah, it, it was kind of cool. That's fun. And, and is this is this what you're doing now? Is You know, now that you're retired? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. You, pretty much full-time writing. Um, I'm doing a... One of the things I found out in doing the research is there was things in writing the other books. Um, you got an award in 1954. Okay, where was Medal Day? Who gave you the medal? What did you do? Like, what happened? And there's no way to go look that up. Okay. You know, maybe you could find the 1954 Medal Day book, but not before 1914, there wasn't a Medal Day book. So afterwards, if you go to the library or you have it in your own collection, you can find out some of it, but not all of it. But before that, we don't know. And then the list, even in the department, Medal Day books, they have the list of the Bennett winners. I hate that. Recipients. They didn't, you don't win a medal. At, right, right. In the Olympics, you win a medal. Right. You don't win a medal in firefighting. Um, but the recipients of the, the Bennett, there was errors in the list. And nobody realized, they, they kind of knew there was a couple errors in there, but nobody realized how bad it was. And that there were misspellings, wrong companies, wrong ranks, different years. It, it kind of, over the years, it got messed up. Okay. So that was one of the things that I was able to straighten that list out. Great. And so hopefully this year in that, that book, when it comes out, it'll be appropriate to what actually happened. And it was just little silly things that... Right. But that's you know, meaningful to a lot yeah, of people. Yeah. They that's, had the wrong company down for this guy or whatever, right. so... And how can, how can someone, or viewers, how can they get your books? How can they, how can they purchase them? Um, well, everything just through the website, and it takes you to Etsy. But What's the website? PaulHasshagen.com. Okay, and that's so they can go on there and they can purchase any of the books you, you spoke of? Yep, everything comes right to me. I'm the whole operation. Yeah, I know what that's <laughs> I about. I sign the book. <laughs> I send the book. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're fun if you like that kind of stuff, if you want to read some good fire stories. Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. Chris behind the camera has been uh, the whole way the whole way up was bragging about uh, how great you know the books are and that he enjoys reading the stories and you know I'm I'm super excited about the book I just got um, thank you again I'm, my pleasure I'm ten pages in I don't I'm unlike you I can't read fast so <laughs> well it's it's <laughs> it takes me a while the good thing is it's there but I really enjoy it you know? yeah read it when it's comfortable yeah when you, when you when you have something that you enjoy reading it's not reading. Yeah, yeah. No, I you really and, enjoy it. And it's neat. I had so much help. There's so many cool pictures in there. The guys in uh, the Connecticut uh, Fire, Firefighters Historical Society. Right, and you mentioned them as well. Yeah. 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 Um, funny how they end up getting pictures. There was this man um, that was a photographer in New York City that worked at City Hall. He was the official photographer for the fire department, but didn't get paid. And he took all these photographs. That's awesome. Then he retires and goes to Connecticut, passes away. His son has all this stuff in his garage. Like, what is this? What is this? So he brings it over to these guys at this museum, says, you, you guys want this? And they go, oh my God, it's the <laughs> Dreyfus collection. Oh my. You know, all the early steamer pictures with no the kidding. horses galloping, oh, all man. this tremendous stuff. So they made a, a number of photographs available to me from Rescue One, and it's just... It's crazy to think that stuff was just sitting in a box somewhere. And things keep happening. There's a, a captain in Rescue One that's mentioned in the 40s, Captain Green, and um, he was a firefighter in the company. 
a lieutenant in the company and later captain in the company. And a friend of mine that used to work in Rescue One just met his son, and I just got the man's phone number. Awesome. So maybe he has something, and if he doesn't have something for me, I have something for him. So That's um, great. It never stops. That's so never great. Stops. Well, Paul, I appreciate so much you being here. It oh, meant, my meant a, a world to me for you to come on the show, especially my little show. But um, cool. There you have it. So episode 20, I told you this was going to be a big one. Paul Hashhagen, Rescue One, Freeport on Long Island. And uh, again, thank you for inviting me into your home. This was, a, this was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Stay safe out there. All right. Be careful. Um, real quick, I just want to mention Top Score. Thank you very much for, uh, for helping us out and uh, being part of our, our event here. And it, this, this episode was a big one with Paul. And um, if you haven't had an opportunity yet to check out these books, be sure to check that out. I'll leave a link on the, uh, on the show. This way uh, people can, can get these books. And Chris can attest to how good these books are and, and how meaningful they are. All right. Remember, um, take a look at our website. It's new, newer. It's not an old one. It's actually, um, you know the old websites we always talk about and they have that construction guy under construction? Yeah, yeah. That little logo. I finally have a website that's kind of modern from 2019, so I'm a little excited about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I keep mentioning it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's findthecube.com. <laughs> All right, stay safe, be careful, and as always, look out for each other.